Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Joining me today, uh, Justin, who you may better know as Controlled Pairs Gaming. You can find him on Instagram. You can find him on uh, uh, YouTube and a handful of other places we're going to talk about. Uh, he uh, was producing, or actually still is producing, uh, pretty awesome videos kind of breaking down uh, more tactical games and using uh, like true world tactics that he's learned in his uh, in his tenure in the Army. Uh, to play these games, and I would let his uh, his gentle voice lull me to sleep at night after a long day's work watching his videos. <laughs> Justin, thanks for joining me, dude. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited. We uh, we finally made it work, and I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, Justin and I had planned to do this, uh, and then uh, somebody, i.e., me, the host and producer, uh, and uh, you know the guy who's in charge of this particular podcast, did not account for daylight savings because Arizona doesn't play that game. Uh, and so my time doesn't change, but everybody else's time across the country changes. And uh, I left Justin on the hook for like an hour before he was like, all right, I guess he's not showing up. <laughs> so. Yeah, pretty much anyone else would have an hour of flexibility, but my life is absolute chaos. So it, it's no issue at all. Uh, we all have scheduling stuff from time to time. And uh, I'm glad to be here today and make it work. Hey, man, I'm glad you're here. And, and if I... I think that that some of us, if our lives aren't chaos, then then, you know, it, it's just weird. There's a, a, a saying from uh, from Hal Moore uh, it, that uh, nothing's wrong unless there's nothing wrong. So, yeah, what a man, <laughs> a, a, an early Hal Moore reference. This is going to be a good talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to we're going to we're going to pepper those kind of throughout our conversation. <laughs> I just finished. And Justin and I are going to talk, uh, uh, rather, I'm going to let Justin talk about leadership, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm on a huge kick right now. I leave for, well, by the time this, this episode airs, I will be on my, uh, my vacation, uh, kind of unplugging for a week, and, and the wife and I are getting out, but I am uh, bringing a couple books on leadership with me so that I can dive into those while sitting on the beach. And uh, I just finished uh, Hal Moore's book on leadership, which is like a very early Jocko-style book, highly recommended cool. to, uh, to anybody who's out there, but... Uh, Justin, that kind of leads me into, uh, uh, into our icebreaker questions, man. If you could have a drink with anybody living or dead, who is it? And what are you drinking? Oh man. So it's, um, I think I, I thought about this and, and my go-to answers are kind of like the classics, you know, you know, classic American presidents or Abraham Lincoln's or George Washington's or Jesus Christ, like the, the answers you might typically expect to hear. Um, I, I kind of would go the other way with it. And I'd say my dad, I lost my dad when I was in college. Um, and, uh, kind of like right on the verge of me starting to achieve the things that he knew I was setting out to achieve, you know? Um, and so he, he never had the chance to meet my wife or my children or, or see me, um, do things in the military and, and kind of, you know, achieve these goals that I had. And I'd, I'd love to um, be able to talk to him and, um, you know, tell him about my life and introduce him to my family and that sort of thing. So a little bit sentimental, um, but there's a lot of incredible historical figures that I can read a whole lot about. Um, but, but there's not a book about my dad, you know, so it's, um, it, that, that would be my, uh, my one drink with anyone living or dead. I like it. What do you think you guys would drink? Um, this is, so I, I know you're a, you know, you're a, a bourbon or whiskey guy. Um, I drink beer, uh, and so did my dad and, um, and, and it probably wouldn't be anything special. You know, I was, I was um, I was raised in a pretty simple Southern family and, um, this, uh, predates the, the days of. Uh, hipster beers and IPAs, so I'd, I'd probably be drinking 
um, just a, a domestic Miller Lite or something simple like that. My man, you know, I was a uh, every now and then I still have a beer and it's usually Miller Lite, although I do joke. I joke that I was, quote unquote, raised on Coors Light uh, out on the Colorado River and, and in Lake Havasu area. Um, but uh, my dad, my dad uh, uh, fell headlong into sobriety. I was like six months old and the day like I got to hand it to the dude is that when I was six months old, he quit drinking and went completely cold turkey and hasn't touched the stuff since then. He tells me when he's when he's 75, so he's got like 10 years um, yeah. or, or nine years left. When he's 75, he's going to go back to smoking and drinking every day because he figures <laughs> he'll have earned it. But um, my dad was a Miller Lite guy uh, on my parents' honeymoon. Uh, my mom jokes that, uh, the last time that she saw my dad was when they boarded the cruise ship and he hung out at a bar with, uh, one old dude for the, like the entire four day cruise and they drank the ship out of Miller light. So, uh, <laughs> so you will, you will never offend me if you ask for a Miller That's light. Awesome. Uh, and definitely your dad is probably, uh, uh, extremely proud of you and, and was a hell of a good dude. Uh, to produce such a good dude uh, like yourself. So uh, definitely uh, crack open a cold Miller Lite with, with Pop. I like it, man. I like I it. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I, I did reference a couple books that I'm kind of getting into, but what books are mm-hmm. you currently reading or listening to? Um, yeah, well, listening to is is my excuse. on I think we can still claim that, right? It's 2022. It's okay to listen to books now. Yeah, I think we're, um, we're there technologically speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I'm in between. I, I just finished. Actually, um, you had a guest on who recommended Gulag Archipelago, you know, four or five episodes ago. Uh-huh. Um, and I heard, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, who's a, you know, a speaker and a thinker that I admire, um, reference it quite a bit. Uh, it's, you know, by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's uh, essentially the, the quintessential critique of authoritarian governments, of communism, of, uh, of socialist society writ large. Um, and, and maybe among the most important nonfiction books of, you know, the, the 20th century. Um, and so I got through that. I, I did do the abridged version. I think like the, the actual full work is, you know, something like 36 hours long. If you listen to it in like 1800 pages or something ridiculous. Um, and it's literally translated straight from Russian into English. Um, so I did the abridged version. It's kind of more written for Western audiences, much easier to digest in the context of everything going on, you know, in Eastern Europe right now. Um, it seemed appropriate to get through that. So I knocked that one out. Um, and actually kind of on the other end of the spectrum, immediately following that I, I got through, um, outliers, um, by Malcolm Gladwell that I just finished uh, a couple of days ago. I'm not a super avid reader or even listen tour of books. I consume a lot of podcasts and then as kind of books hit my radar. Um, you know, I'll, I'll knock them down. I've got like the usual, like audible subscription. So typically about like one a month or every other month or so, but those two are both really good. Highly recommend both Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, um, explores just reasons that people are hyper successful, um, and the things that separate, you know, the, the phenomenal achievers of our time, like your Bill Gates style folks and, and these people who are just at the top of their field, like the top 1% of the top 1%. Um, and it adds a little bit of context. So a lot of times, yes, it's a, a lot of personal ability, a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, discipline and ethic and things that you might expect of someone who's achieving great things. Um, uh, but then it also accounts for some other externalities that you may not usually consider. Um, uh, so it's it pretty cool. Nice. I, I think that it's uh, it's becoming more and more common uh, for uh, people, no matter your your social class or your upbringing, um, just anybody who's driven to succeed. Uh, you're seeing many, many more options for these sort of. Um, I think what used to be called like quote unquote self help books, but now I mean it's it's truly hey let's 
let's succeed the you know the the zig yeah. ziglar and, and dale carnegie's of the world have now multiplied yeah. exponentially right yeah um and you're getting it in in different mediums that speak to different people so awesome uh keep keep reading those and and uh, i have no doubt that you will keep kicking ass um i had to buy uh i i, you, I think you're successful when you've got a really awesome sticker for sale on your website or when you've been made into a lego um and i'm sure you will be made into a lego at some point in time one day one day but uh but you're uh uh you've got a a, a sticker on your store of a pair a play yeah. on you a play on your on your uh page controlled pairs and he's in full kit full battle rattle and i have that plastered right to the front of my little mini fridge at work. i love it I, so. I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> I, I I love when I uh, I get DMs on social media or people reach out or like see me in a game and they mention that they've they've bought a sticker and I see pictures of them just kind of floating around in society, which is hilarious to think that they're out there because it's such a meme. It's so silly. Um, and uh, but uh, yeah, it, it it you know it's a little thing and and the money doesn't you know do a ton for me. Obviously, like you can imagine the margins on stickers aren't sure, great. Yeah. <laughs> but. but uh, but I, the the support is uh, is so cool, and uh, it's just it's wild to think that my silly little internet hobby is now like materially floating around in society. Build that brand, man! I build that brand, and I will do what I can to uh, to help you out. Um, Much love. Yeah, heck yeah, man! Um, uh, final icebreaker question to you: You can go forward or backwards ten years for a thirty minute conversation with yourself. Which direction are you going, and what are you going to say? Uh, I think I'm going backwards 10 years. Um, I don't want to spoil the future. You know, it's exciting. It's fun. I don't know what's coming. I don't need to know it's coming. I'm just kind of enjoying what I've got now. And if I went backwards, um, I, I think I'd give, you know, uh, you know, 23 year old me, um, just some, some ad advice and expectations. I probably tell them to slow down a little bit and kind of soak up what you're doing with your life and your time and, you know, remind them that, that, uh, what you're doing in your twenties is extraordinarily unique and you need to, take it all in and, uh, and soak it in and commit those things to memory and just really savor those kind of, um, the things that I just happen to be doing at that time in my life. Um, you know, cause they were unique and they were fleeting and, and I don't know that I appreciated them at the time as much as I should have. I like it, man. That's a, that's a, uh, definitely a unique answer and, and, a, and in a good way, I can appreciate what you said is that you don't want to spoil the future. Um, but go back to your old self and, and tell yourself to just, you know, slow down, take it in, which I think all of us looking back in the past, well, maybe not all of us, but I think a, a large majority of people looking back on, on the past would probably say the same things. It, it seems as though there's this, this push and this drive that like when, when, and, and I can't speak to my international audience though, though I imagine that some of you are, are possibly thinking the same thing is that when you're in like this high school, like your late teens, you're like, okay, I want to get to this next, you know, it's like, it's like get to 18, get to 21. I want to do, 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 go, yeah. go, 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 yeah. go. And then before you know it, you're fucking 30. It hurts getting in and out of bed. Your bones creak yeah. and make all sorts of noises. You can't eat pizza <laughs> without getting heartburn. Um, and, uh, and you get hung over after one light yeah. year. So, uh, and, and, and then life kind of just smacks you in the head and gives you gray hair. So I, you know, <laughs> yeah, and it keeps speeding up. There's something about, um, you know, not that I'm old, but I'm older than I ever have been. Right. Yeah, but, and absolutely. there's something about as, as time passes, it seems to continue to pass faster and faster. Um, and, and I, I noticed myself just kind of wishing it would slow down just a little bit so I could savor these, you know, moments with my family and while my kids are the ages that they're at and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I, uh, 
my my buddy Brett said it best when I, when my son was born. He his he already had a a, a boy uh, and he's got a, another kid now. But he was like, you know that the hours are long, uh, the days are long, but the years are fast. And dude, I like. I, yeah, it's, it's cliche to say it, but I look at my two year old like, oh, dude, come on, slow down, man. Like what, yeah. you know? Yeah. Hey, cool. You're becoming a little bit more independent each day and you're like learning new words and you can speak in yeah. more, more or less complete sentences. Um, but I was just like yesterday, I had you swaddled sitting on the couch at three o'clock in the morning, watching some documentary on Normandy and, you know, feeding you a bottle and uh, yeah. one, wondering when I was going to sleep. And now it's like a snap of the fingers and that's, that's gone. Sure. And it's not short of, short of my wife and I having another kid. It's, it's just not coming back. Right. Like yep. it's, it's insanity, man. I, uh, you know, and, and I got to imagine that my parents in their fifties and sixties look back and go, Hey, you were just, li- you were little, not that long ago. Like, Right. Isn't it weird when you become a parent and like first you think of your kids and your family, but then you're, you stop and it gives you a totally different perspective on your own parents. And like, I can only, I can't even imagine like when, what my mom sees when she sees me and my wife and my kids and like, you know, what, what we're doing with our lives and stuff. I, I can't even, from the perspective of a dad, like I cannot even fathom, you know, being in my fifties and looking at my adult children, uh, you know, living lives as, as successful young adults. So it's, it's just, yeah. What a life, huh? Here yeah. we are. <laughs> here, here we are. It's wild, man. Uh, uh, hey, if I made one listener cry, DM me and I'll send you a free sticker. So <laughs> when, whenever I get around to getting them made. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, man, oh, man, this, uh, this is going to be a great episode. We're 13 minutes into this conversation. We're already we're, we're taking on heavy topics, bro. Um, but uh, what I want to do is kind of I want to go back to uh, to uh, controlled pairs uh controlled pairs, junior baby controlled pairs, and, and just kind of, uh, uh, give us, how did you get to this point, uh, your time in the Ranger regiment and, and, and just kind of what, what you got going on with, uh, uh, with your, with your streaming and your content creation, uh, you know, spin me a yarn, man, regale me with, with the tales of yeah. controlled pairs. Um, so it's, it's kind of two paths simultaneously traveled, you know, there's this, um, this kind of unique side of me that's extremely nerdy, extremely into technology, um, creative, super into, you know, content creation and entrepreneurship and, you know, brand management development and audience development. Like I, I love those things about business, but there's, um, you know, another part of me that's extremely, you know, committed to, to service and always wanted to pursue a, a career in service. Um, so, those kind of things emerged simultaneously when I was super young. I, you know, was raised in a, a pretty traditional Southern family and instilled with the, you know, values of, uh, of patriotism and faith super early in my life. And, you know, while those things were happening by virtue of being raised by good people, I was also, you know, getting my first in 64 and, uh, and playing Super Nintendo and, and getting a PlayStation. And, and I, I enjoyed video games and technology more broadly at the same time. Um, and so those two passions kind of, progressed simultaneously, uh, went to, you know, got through high school, um, did pretty well in high school, went to, uh, you know, uh, 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 actually a military boarding school, believe it or not, um, for high school. And, and during that period, really committed to deciding to serve considered after high school, um, joining immediately afterwards and basically just trying to get overseas as fast as possible. The GWAT was in full swing, didn't want to miss the boat. And, um, you know, but I, I'd done pretty good in high school and, and decided, 
through some encouragement from my family uh, to take a, uh, a, a an ROTC scholarship and, and go and knock out some school and uh, and then take a commission and, and go into the active service in the army. That whole time playing tons of video games and all that sort of stuff um, started you know attempting to make like videos just for my friends, just for fun as a total hobby. Uh, never any intention to actually do anything really, you know, significant with it while I was in college as well. And then ended up entering service um, and, uh, you know, doing the usual path of, of kind of the infantry officer in the army, which is, you know, you knock out the infantry basic officers leadership course uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia. And, you know, it's, I think it's four or five months or, you know, it was back then. I don't know what it is now. And, it's your usual small unit tactics stuff, doctrine stuff, planning, you know, troop leading procedures, a lot of weapons familiarization. You work through individual skills all the way up through like a platoon live fire, a bunch of patrolling and stuff like that. And the whole course is designed to be a ranger school prep course. Um, so I finished up that, went straight to ranger school, knocked out ranger school, went straight to my first unit, um, did a year as a platoon leader, went overseas, you know, to Afghanistan for a year, came back. Um, and then after I got back from that trip to Afghanistan, went to selection for the ranger regiment, worked out, um, and then uh, did a couple pumps in the Ranger Regiment. And, and through that whole time, I was also, you know, playing a, a ton of games, you know, whenever I could, balancing that against, like, this incredibly important professional obligation I had to the, to the profession and to the, the people I was privileged to have the opportunity to serve alongside and, and for. And, um, and it was a balance, always a balancing act. Um, you know, fell in love in that whole process, got married in that whole process, uh, started having babies during that whole process. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been wild been a hell of a journey that's for sure and uh um looking uh, you, you touched on kind of a an interesting point that uh and it, it carries on into the entirety of our conversation and that uh the, this whole time you went through arguably one of the most difficult processes in our nation's military you know organization as a whole right um i've never been through ranger school um i understand it is fairly difficult, uh, and, and fairly challenging. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned you, you kind of nerdy and, and, and playing games, but you're also, there's this other like GI Joe side of you. Is there, <laughs> I, I mean, is that the makeup of, of the Ranger regiment, uh, uh, nowadays in that you've got like these, these dudes like, uh, 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 Matt best, right. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, who, who is, you know, looks like a GI Joe, um, and yeah. can clown around. Now you've got guys like John Lovell, not knocking on him, but he just made a post about how like, you're a, you're an asshole. If you play video games and don't get out there and, and prepare for the end of the world, whatever I'm truncating yeah. what he said. Um, again, yeah, he's not a gamer fan. He's, 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 he's a, not a video he's a, game fan. He's I have, a classic guy. I have a, a massive amount of respect for John Lovell's yeah. skills and abilities. I love him to death. Um, but uh, I have to imagine that the the regiment now, as is the case with modern law enforcement agencies, it's it's us. You mentioned the N sixty four, right? Our first. I, I'm I'm gonna take a wild guess and say that uh, because you and I are nearly the same age, uh, is that our first like first person shooter experience. If it wasn't like the OG Doom, it was Goldeneye. Yep. Um, Yep, but Goldeneye, it, Perfect Dark, that kind of whole generation. And and in in some of the uh, and you'll have to forgive my sort of inept. Uh, I, I I was not in the military, but you see, like inevitably in a military movie nowadays, there's always a scene where they're fucking playing Halo or something on an Xbox or whatever. Um, but but is that you know kind of the the makeup of a modern 
uh, or of the modern Ranger regiment and that you've got, it's no longer like, you know, these yoked, like uh, jock style dudes. It's sort of, I feel like it's a, a cross section of America, but I, I could be a little off. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on in that like time has changed period. Um, the, you know, the, the, the military of today is made up of a slice of America, just as you say, they've got the same passions as their civilian counterparts. Um, they're just, you know, they have, they have different pursuits professionally. They might have different values, motivations, different levels of discipline and commitment. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, you, you definitely see more. I, I think now it's, it's, the dudes are still yoked, you know, like they're, they're still freaking savages. Um, and they're extremely dangerous men, but they're dangerous men who have like a wide variety of passions. I do think I'm kind of a unicorn, um, in that, like I'm, ex- I'm a unicorn in my particular passion. I like content creation. I, I really do enjoy it. It's, it's just fun as a hobby. I love content creation as much as I enjoy the games that I play. I spend significantly more time um, you know, editing videos and talking to brands and building my business. than I do playing games. I may only play a game for an hour a week, like quite literally I'll, I'll publish a video a week, but if you see a video anywhere on any of my, you know, my, uh, my business, um, that's the only time I play. Like if, if it's a video, that's like all I played that week. And, um, and so it's, it's an extremely abbreviated amount of time. But, but what I would say is, you know, what is, certainly true of, of modern special operations forces is that they're just extremely passionate and, and driven people. So whatever their thing is, they're going to be obsessed and committed to it. So if they're like a, you know, a competitive shooter, they're going to be all in on it and they're going to have all the gear and all the training, all the proficiency, get all the rounds, you know, downrange as possible. They're going to be extremely, extremely competent. If they're a motorcycle guy, they're going to have customs. They're going to work on their own bike. They're going to be extremely invested in that hobby. If it's woodworking, it's the same thing. Um, if it's fitness and they're going to be running triathlons and marathons and doing endurance events, they're going to you know, be in strong man, like whatever it is, there's just like, you don't see a lot of half-hearted anything um, in that population of humans. And you don't see a lot of wasted time either. It's just uh, people that for whatever reason, they're just, they're passionate. They're just passionate people. Um, and it requires that degree of, you know, passion or, uh, or, you know, neuroticism to want to endure everything it takes to, to get into those organizations anyway, uh, you gotta be kind of, you know, have a kind of weird thing about you to, to want to go do that stuff, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I, there's, there's equally passionate about, you know, hunting down and putting boot to ass on account of the country as they are about whatever they're doing in their free time. So I think like you're, the dudes still look dangerous. They are still exceptionally dangerous. Um, but, but they're just passionate about whatever their, their other hobbies are. And just to delineate real quick, because I know we, we mentioned Ranger School, Ranger Regiment, and inevitably, anytime you introduce a new audience to this concept, there's confusion associated with it. So uh, Ranger School, Ranger Regiment, two different things kind of related. Ranger School can be attended by anybody um, from across the Army, you know, presuming they've gotten a slot to the course. It's a 60-day course that takes place across Fort Benning, um, as well as Dahlonega, Georgia, and then down in the swamps in Florida. And if you graduate that, you earn a Ranger tab, goes on your uniform, you're a Ranger qualified individual, and that's badass. Not a lot of people do it. Um, and I think all people who graduate that school deserve all the credit for doing so. Ranger Regiment is a, a specific unit um, within the military tasked with a special operations mission, and the Ranger Regiment's comprised of mostly people who have graduated that course. And if you want to be a leader within the regiment, you also have to have graduated that course. Uh, but there's just some, some nuance there that a lot of folks aren't totally aware of. The, the difference between the, you see on uniforms, the 
the tab versus the scroll, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And and I have zero bad blood. Like it's it's not. There's a lot of I think especially among the younger guys um, who are extremely extremely proud of that scroll, and as they freaking absolutely should be. Um, there's a there's a just this natural like competitive nature that you know wants to just roast dudes who only have tabs or whatever. But like if if you're on the team, you're on the team in my opinion. And uh, you know, get on all the dudes who've done whatever they've done. If you're if you're doing what you love and you're doing it well, good on you. Well, and I think that uh, that there is at least a subsection of the audience for this show who, you know, they might be in high school, they might be in college trying to figure out, yeah. okay, it, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to go into this, you know, for hey, being a first responder sounds kind of cool. Um, uh, you know, being a cop, like, eh, I feel like I feel like trying to recruit people for police work now is akin to maybe trying to recruit people for the military and I, I do say akin, it's not a one for one, but it's like trying mm-hmm. to recruit people into the military in 1968 or, or when all the stop loss was, you know, shit was going on as, yeah. uh, as you and I were, were graduating high school or, or, or coming out of, you know, college type of thing. Um, but uh, if you would speak briefly on, you went through the ROTC program, the Reserve Officer Training Corps available at most, uh, I don't know about all, but most colleges. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, is there still because if, if you read through history um like uh like dick winters easy company band of brothers rotc graduate speaks in one mm-hmm. of his books about the uh i forget exactly how he put it but basically like the west point protection association and that the west pointers always counted themselves of a higher caliber than the rotc graduates yeah. if you would speak for a little bit on on rotc and your experiences um and and sort of what life is like when you're a, an officer who comes out of ROTC versus an officer who comes out of uh, uh, like OCS, you know, maybe maybe comes sure. up, you know, goes from enlisted to officer versus that like yeah. West Point graduate. Yeah, I think performance trumps everything. The military is a meritocracy um, in most cases, especially in combat arms, certainly in the infantry and even more so in special operations. Um, the everyone's aware of like who what who's from west point what everybody's commissioning source is you know it's, a, it's common knowledge and, and west pointers catch a lot of shit for being weird um but can i i assume i can use vulgarity on your podcast oh yeah no this carries uh, <laughs> this carries an explicit rating have at it <laughs> right but the um but yeah so it, it's you know it's pretty common knowledge who is from where it's not really a point of contention it, it really isn't on rare occasions you'll you might encounter um, you know, someone who happens to have graduated the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and thinks very highly of that fact. Um, but they are typically, you know, identified and um, catch a lot of flack for that kind of pretentious posture. But I would say that's exceptionally rare, um, more so than it was in the past. I think ROTC programs vary a lot depending on where you go, because um, each program is, is essentially a different unit, different leadership, different command structure, different climate, different culture. Um, they, they go through the same training, but just kind of like your day-to-day experience might vary a little bit. The level of intensity certainly would vary a whole lot. Um, and the quality of the cadet that they're turning into a lieutenant is going to vary a lot potentially um, across you know those programs. But the level of training in those programs is super like basic, super low. I mean, it's, you know, you know, I, understanding what all the ranks look like, how to wear your damn uniform, how to do basic land navigation, uh, basic rifle marksmanship, extremely entry level, small unit tactics, um, how the army is structured and, and things of that nature. It's not, 
into you know the, the minutia of the technical proficiencies that you'll get once you enter active duty of the reserves and you, you go off to your initial you know entry training, which is um, much more heavy in in the minutia and kind of like the technical details. Like I, I you know obviously not familiar with law enforcement, but I would equate um, you know our initial entry training, whether it's on the enlisted side, basic training AIT, or on the officer side, IBULIC, um, or basic officer leadership course. That's essentially like your academy period. Um, where, where you're just getting a lot of reps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, academies, uh, shit, they're even longer now. I've only been in, been a police officer for five years, but it, they're mm-hmm. longer now that they were five months when I went through it. Now they're nearing, you know, six, seven months, even some academies. Yeah. Uh, some academies are live in, some academies are where I went, you went home every night. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I imagine that, uh, the, I, I would say the the one sort of uh, well, aside from the obvious difference of military versus law enforcement, military versus paramilitary, I should say, um, is when we when we graduate the academy, you may have a two or three week training cycle uh, of of quote unquote post academy training where you're qualling to maybe your department standards are different from the state standards. Uh, you are taking maybe another physical fitness test. You're learning your own little slice of the world that you police. And then you go right into uh, field training where, um, you know, anything can and will happen. It's sort of a it's a free game. Uh, you know, I got into the car and my FTO looked at me my first day on the road and he was like, the world doesn't give a fuck that you just graduate. Well, he's Mormon. He didn't swear. I added that one in. But he's like, the, the world doesn't the world doesn't care that you just graduated the academy. You are now in a uniform. You are a police officer. People will act as such. Um, and you should act that way as well. And a lot of what I have learned over the years uh, on the job training and then occasionally uh, and my department's fairly good about sending us to training. But, you know, occasionally you go to some outside training or, or some sort of, in you know, uh, interdepartmental training. Mm. Um, and I imagine that to a point, the military is the same because sure, you may go through uh, you go through ROTC that that gives you that basic building foundation. You go through um, your your officer's leadership course. You go through uh, uh, ranger school, um, you, you airborne school, air assault school. Um, but until your boots hit the dirt in the countries in which you're training to fight, like you you don't really have the opportunity to put all that together until you get the opportunity to put it all together. I don't really know how, how else to, to yeah. word that. Yeah. I, I think what is interesting, um, and, and I do not envy the jobs of uh, police officers in the least. I, I admire law enforcement a great deal. And I think uh, to a large extent, your day-to-day risk factor is significantly higher in law enforcement than it is in the military, uh, you know, until we're in like a high intensity conflict um, or you happen to be deployed in, in pretty dangerous spots. But um, the, you know, what's interesting on our end is, is our, uh, like a military training will achieve like a very high degree of fidelity and a very high degree of intensity. And you may train this entire population of people who just never actually do go overseas. Um, you know, and it's possible in those situations that folks are going through this like high intensity, super high fidelity training, lots of, you know, full mission profile stuff, force on force training, live fire training and things of that nature. Um, but they may never, may never even get to put it to the test, but yeah, once you actually do get overseas and your boots on ground leading people, um, it definitely has a different flavor. And I can imagine there's a similar feel to that as there would be kind of your first time in uniform in a patrol car. Yeah. Yeah. The first time that, uh, that you roll out the gate and you're like, oh, okay, everything is real. Now the first time somebody runs yeah. from you or, or squares up to fight you or, or produces a weapon, you're like, yeah. 
you may not think about it until after the fact. It was like the first time I had to uh, draw my handgun. After the fact, I was like, that was that was a weird experience. Like I yeah. I just pointed a a loaded weapon at another human being. Yeah. And all of my training tells me, you know, you don't point a gun at anything unless you're willing to use it or don't point a gun at anything you're not uh, willing to destroy or purchase. And it's like, holy shit, what? Like, yeah. Uh, and it, and it, it fucks with your OODA loop, right? Like you're, you're just sitting there trying to process 100%. that. Hopefully you're trying to process that after the fact and not while it's happening because uh, that can produce a dangerous situation for you and those around you, including the person you are pointing the gun at because uh, I don't for know. Sure. I don't know anybody who actually like seeks uh, again different different mission profiles, right? Uh, if I was on the uh, the Bin Laden mission, I would absolutely seek to have have uh, have have taken care of that that mission. But as a police officer, I don't know too many people who are like, "Yay, let's kill people." Um, there's yeah. there is a liberal journalist somewhere who's going to take that soundbite and use it against me in court one day. I just know it. <laughs> all well. It's it's. I guess it's just going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah. uh, uh, you being an officer, um, one thing that, that I, I think it's important to drive home is that leadership occurs at all levels. Uh, and this is, this is my opinion. Um, everybody, be it you're in the military, you're a first responder, you are in a corporate setting, every, every person has the ability to develop the, the skills and characteristics of a good leader, whether or not they choose to do so is on them. Um, and in my opinion, you know, uh, rank is, is a title bestowed upon you, uh, but leadership is truly is a set of character traits. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the, the, the challenges that you've faced in your leadership roles and, and how have you overcome them? Well, they've been numerous, obviously. I, um, my training, like, especially on the officer side, the, your training begins, like you, you start off being trained, you know, to, to be a leader in a, you know, from a book or a textbook and that's, it all starts in ROTC. Uh, but you don't really ever, you're not really ever challenged to apply it in a real sense until you arrive at your first unit. Um, during training, uh, you know, your in- initial entry training or even at ranger school, you lead formations, you lead patrols, you lead fire teams, you know, you're a, a peer leader making sure everyone gets to class on time or shows up to chow or has the right packing list or is doing the right thing in the field. Um, but in those kind of like classroom settings, it's, it, it's leadership on paper, but it's like you're taking turns being in charge, you know, and, and you might be evaluated as a peer leader for a period of time. I'm sure something similar happens in the academy. Uh, and then one day, like your, your day as the peer leader is, is over and they put a new kid in charge and, and he'll run the show. So it's not until you actually get to your first unit and, uh, and it's real where they're like, Hey, you know, Ranger qualified infantry lieutenant, you are a platoon leader now. And these 40 American soldiers are now your responsibility. Go. Um, until you kind of like really feel the first true burden, I think, of leadership. And you're at a severe deficit as a, you know, a 22-year-old, um, extremely junior soldier and extremely junior officer now standing in front of a, a group of Americans who, many of whom have likely already experienced combat, already um, overseas a couple times. And, uh, and, and so like the initial challenge, I'd say that that I face and everyone entering a leadership position for the first time faces is the challenge of leading people who are inherently more experienced and often more qualified than you are, um, to lead them. And, um, 
And, and the way to overcome that, one, is to be confident in your training and the fact that you've been prepared for the job to be in charge and, and, to, and to legitimately ch- take charge, but not be a freaking asshole. Uh, and, and it's the same thing you hear anytime, especially in officer conversations and, and kind of young manager kind of conversations, is, uh, is you've got to do it with a, with a sense of humility and, uh, and a sense of empathy for the people that you lead. Um, and, you know, I, I was always very careful never to assume that I had all of the answers or all the right answers. Um, and, and eager to seek the advice of the, the dudes that I knew um, had significantly more experience and then take their candid advice. And you have to earn that candid advice because they're not going to provide it unless they trust you. Um, but take that candid advice and then run that against what I know uh, to be lawful and appropriate by virtue of my training and, and come up with something, um, you know, in the middle. So that the challenge of coming up with that task, that's a, the right balance of this experience and wise advice that you're getting from the people that you're leading coupled with what you know to be right based off your training and regulations and authorities and the responsibility you have to meet your boss's intent. Um, you know, you, you get to that solution, but then the implement implementation of that solution can be even more challenging, particularly if it is at odds with any of the parties. So to an extent, you're a mediator, um, you know, you're a mediator between your higher headquarters and, uh, and the people you lead and you have a responsibility to, to challenge the people you lead to rise to the occasion, to meet your higher headquarters, um, you know, their tasks that they're asking of you. But you also have a responsibility, um, you know, to protect them, um, you know, from, from wasting their time, from unnecessary danger, um, from, you know, being dishonest or, or providing, um, you know, bad expectations uh, of what like a specific operation or a training event may entail. So I guess that's a, a super broad answer to your question. But I say, like, the initial challenge that all leaders face is inherently not having experience, but having to lead anyway, um, and then trying to find a balance between the mission that they have to accomplish and the people that they have to accomplish that mission, and doing it in good faith to both parties, their boss and the people they lead. Boom! I'm going to use that. I think as the soundbite for uh, the duration of my life, because um, <laughs> truly, I mean, and and you touch on so many valid points in that. Hey, you he, here, you are now a leader. Here's all of your responsibilities. And then they pat yep. you on the head and send you off to your first unit. Okay, good luck. You got this. I think maybe go Fuck. get him, bud. You go get him, <laughs> bud. Right. All right. Smack you on the ass. Maybe don't do that nowadays. Yep. It's frowned upon. Um, but, uh, but send you on your merry way. And then you arrived, as you said, to these, these 40 American soldiers or, or in police terms, you arrive to your first, you know, six to eight person patrol team as a, as a sergeant for us is, is mm-hmm. you, you know, sort of you're working your way up to like middleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, don't be an asshole. Listen to the people with more experience than you and understand that they have more experience than you. Right. Like I, mm-hmm. I am a detective now, whenever the day comes that I decide to, uh, work at promoting to go back to be a patrol sergeant, it's likely that it will have been quite some time since I'd been on patrol and it is incumbent upon me to not walk in there, uh, you know, uh, thinking that I'm, I'm the, the fucking baddest dude in the room yeah. and, and I am God's gift to patrol work because like now nah, it's been a hot minute since you've been on patrol. Um, we don't do things like that anymore. You ancient bastard or whatever they, you know, yeah. <laughs> they might go through their head. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I have to imagine that it is uh, it has to be a little intimidating to, to go into the, you know, that first formation or whatever and meet, meet your your troops for the first time. And you are looking at dudes with, 
uh, you know, one or multiple combat deployments under their belt. And you're like, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I'm the new guy in charge and I'm going to lead you into combat where you've already been before. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, it's extraordinarily bizarre. It's a, it's an enormous challenge. Um, the, uh, and, and you know, the, each, each branch of service, the army included is designed to, to allow that to happen. Like we have, we have the right non-commissioned officers in the right place with the right levels of experience to support our young officers, develop them and mentor them. It's kind of a, it's a bizarre structure. It's unique um, to the military and, and very rarely have I ever seen it or heard of it in the corporate business world where you've got, you know, this uh, by design, an extremely junior person responsible for this formation, but deliberately paired with a senior NCO responsible for, you know, guiding, mentoring, developing and, and being the, you know, the voice of reason or at least another voice, um, in the formation. And that, that relationship is so critical and so unique that kind of like that platoon sergeant and platoon leader, um, or platoon commander and platoon sergeant, um, kind of relationship. And, and, but we keep those pairings all the way up. So all the way up through, you know, the highest levels of command, regardless of what branch of service you're in, you'll, you're paired with a commissioned officer if you're an NCO or not, uh, you know, a, uh, an NCO if you're an officer. Uh, and, and it, it, it's beautiful in a sense. It really is. I mean, it, it's something that I think we've, we've nailed over time and obviously it comes, um, you know, from the, as long as Western militaries have been organized since, you know, Baron von Steuben drafted the blue book, the, that, that is how our militaries have been organized. And, and you have this tireless advocate for the enlisted soldier standing next to, you know, the commission officer responsible for accomplishing the mission. And it balances itself extraordinarily well, particularly when that relationship is extremely strong. To, uh, to make another Hal Moore reference, you've got Lieutenant Colonel Moore, uh, exactly. j- jumping into LZX ray with Sergeant major Plumley, yeah. right. Who, again, as you yep. said, that, that pairing goes, goes all the way up. I think that that law enforcement, I think that there's a chance to implement that, even if it's just on a, a super non-official, uh, you know, sort of ca- well, I, uh, casual level in that, um, as a new patrol sergeant, um, or, or you left as a patrol sergeant and now you are a sergeant over a detective unit. Again, very different mission set. Maybe you've never worked that specialty before, um, or, you know, or, or a SWAT sergeant or whatever the case may be. Um, there are inevitably, I, I think there's going to be a senior person who you technically outrank that it, mm-hmm. it could be very beneficial to you and your career to sort of like hang on tight to this person and develop that strong uh, sure. personal and professional relationship with them because you, I, I advocate for always being a student and always, always learning. Um, the day that you think, you know, it all is the day that, that everybody realizes that you don't know shit. Um, yep. So no, I, I, I love that. I, I, that is unique to the military. I truly, I mean, I'm sitting here just as you said, I can't think of anywhere else where, where you might see that. So, um, uh, Shout out to uh, to whoever your uh, your enlisted uh, partners were that uh, that kept yeah. you uh, successful. What is it though when when you got in and you became an infantry leader? Did you know from the get go that you wanted to go uh, into into regiment, or did you was that something that developed over time? Um, it, it developed over time. Um, the uh, the regiment's a you know, super small organization and. You know, when most people think soft in the army, um, they don't think of the regiment first, typically just by nature of its size. That's changed a little bit over the last, you know, 10 or 12 years, I think. Um, but, uh, but my, you know, my goal was to, to lead infantrymen, like kind of period into story. And, and I hadn't 
really considered what was going to happen next. I just knew I wanted to, to be a, a good platoon leader and, and have a great experience. And um, I went overseas on that first deployment, and it was a year in Afghanistan. Um, good trip, great experience. And during that deployment, I had some interactions with, uh, with folks that I later learned were rangers. And by virtue of my interaction with them, the professionalism I witnessed, the, the type of missions that they were getting, type of men who they were, um, I made the decision after those kind of engagements with those folks um, that I wanted to, to come back and, and compete for uh, selection and, and go take a swing at it. So that was kind of like the, you know, the catalyst. And what does, uh, for, for the audience who, uh, who may not know what it looks like, what does selection consist of? Yeah, so it's, there's, there's actually... There's, there's several different versions. The, the two most common um, are RASP-1 and RASP-2. Uh, RASP-1 is a ranger assessment selection program designed for your initial entry rangers, so guys who come basically off the street, out of high school, or out of the workforce, or wherever they're at in the world, or even after college. Plenty of guys you know, come in and enlist with master's degrees and, and just want to go kick doors, and that's awesome. Um, but uh, they, uh, they'll take what's called an Option 40 contract, knockout basic training, and uh, OSUT at, at Fort Benning, which is kind of infantry basic training and AIT rolled into one course. Um, then they'll hit airborne school, and then basically they have a guaranteed slot to go to RASP and, uh, and, and knock that out. Um, it's a couple months at Fort Benning, just getting smashed, you know, and, and tested, uh, super physically demanding. Um, and, and there's a lot of training built in as well. So it's, it's designed to, to test levels of fitness and cognitive ability and decision-making and integrity and all these values and characteristics that are required to be a successful ranger. And... Um, and it's also designed to prepare that ranger to, you know, do the job um, once he gets through the program. So, you know, you, you know, like do a lot of marksmanship, do some demo stuff, um, you know, do some infill stuff, get some jumps knocked out, shoot a ton, um, and uh, kind of get like all that fundamental stuff, you know, wired pretty tight so that when you graduate that program and you go to the line, you know, you're, you're effective on day one or at least, you know, ready to be trained by your team leader. Um, so that's kind of on the on the for the the junior guys on uh, the leader side of things. I went to a program called RASP Two. Uh, it's designed for guys who are either competing to serve at higher levels of leadership on the the enlisted side. So even if a a young ranger goes to RASP One one day, he wants to be a platoon sergeant in the regiment. He's got to knock out selection again. Um, so he's got to go back through it um, to be a leader in the organization. And uh, so, you know, they, they pile all the officers into that, that class. They pile the NCOs competing to come back and lead um, on the NCO side into those classes. And uh, it, it's got some similarities to RASP-1, still extremely physically demanding, um, you know, without kind of giving away the, the secrets to the test. You, you got to carry heavy stuff. You got to walk super far. You got to be strong. You got to be fast. You have to have great endurance. Um, there's all sorts of other, you know, there's batteries of testing. Um, they won't go into it, like a ton of detail on, but, but they're, they're looking at the entire person, um, and the body of their career so far, um, cause you're competing to lead in the organization. Um, and, and you can't go straight there. You got to go to the conventional force first, at least on the, the officer side, and you got to be successful in whatever those first jobs were. So for me, you know, that experience as a, a platoon leader and then going over to Afghanistan, those are things that factored in to my being competitive to even attend the course because there's an application process. And then upon arrival to the course, you have to, you know, pass it, um, succeed in it. And then even having successfully completed it, um, you know, appear in front of a board of leaders and, uh, and convince them why, why you deserve to be in the unit. And if that all goes your way, um, you know, you're, uh, you're on the team and you're off to the races pretty quick. I feel like, uh, 
uh, if you get that far, you should go and buy a lottery ticket at that point. It is. Yeah, it, it is not low stress. <laughs> it is. Uh, it was it was formative. That's for sure. It's definitely a formative endeavor. Were there any unique. Um, uh, this is going to sound in your position. You're this may sound like a stupid question, but um, from your your first deployment compared to any subsequent deployments, were there any further sort of unique lessons learned as a, a leader of, of a, um, a unit of that caliber and just a dip with that different mission set or, or your core principle. Oh, yeah. You're, okay. Yeah. So if to, to the ability that you can speak on it, um, uh, if you could, you know, give uh, an example or, or, or two or whatever. Sure. Um, the missions are just different. The responsibility is different. The scope's different. Um, it, it was common in the GWAT for extremely junior people to having extremely strategic impact, regardless of what unit you're in. Anytime you're, you're fighting a counter terror fight or a, you know, counterinsurgency fight, any sorts of like these asymmetric, asymmetric encounters where you're not like arrayed across a big flat, like we're seeing in Eastern Europe right now. Um, any engagement can be, you know, extremely strategically critical, whether, you know, it's, um, you know, something you doing something that results in unnecessary collateral damage, accidentally hurting people that don't need to be hurt. Um, you know, damaging the wrong relationship with the wrong village elder, um, you know, getting freaking livestock caught up in freaking sea wire. Like there's just so many silly little things, some silly, some extremely serious things that could happen that could have a, a strategic impact for the good or, or the bad. Um, and that's true of a private standing, you know, guard at Bagram airfield or, you know, a, 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 a an operator and assaulter, doing a, um, you know, a high risk direct action, special operations raid. Um, what I'd say is, is as you migrate to different parts of the force and, you know, where I serve the, those risks go up extraordinarily. So where there might be a kind of uh, a couple risk areas where you could have those errors occur, um, in the, on the conventional side, it was, you know, virtually every single operation, every single decision, um, is going to have near a strategic impact or a risk of a strategic consequence if it goes awry. And there's, there's, you can speak for, you know, a millennium on the difference in tactics, techniques, procedures, composition of the force, you know, special stuff that you bring that you don't, if you're, you know, in, in the regular army, a lot of that stuff's a little bit more sensitive that we can talk about here, obviously. Um, but the, the biggest difference is just the scope of the responsibility and the, the type of stuff that you, that you get told to go do. Um, to, uh, uh, a bridge slightly we've uh before we get into to gaming and content creating and and yeah and and some of the vr stuff and and airsoft stuff that you've uh you've been a part of uh i have asked you this question before so i, I feel like your answer probably has not changed um uh but for the sake of the listener um given your experiences as a military leader uh and and a leader of of an elite special operations team or um uh, with the, with the Ranger regiment, I could go back to, uh, like either of my uncles who were in, in the, in the eighties, right. Uh, you know, hundred and first for one of them, 82nd for the other one. And their mission set was, uh, post Vietnam, the Russians are going to come thundering, uh, you know, uh, across the, uh, 
the Kazakh mm-hmm. steppes and, and into Eastern Europe, and it's going to be a massive tank battle, and this is what we need to prepare for. Uh, and even into the 90s, there was probably still a little bit of that uh, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and, and uh, all the crazies are buying Russian Russian tanks for a dollar a piece. Um, and everybody, yep. <laughs> everybody all of a sudden has has a, a tank battalion at their disposal. And uh, we don't remember where we put our nuclear weapons. Um, and then yep. even pre 9-11, we, we knew uh, about Al Qaeda and we knew some shit was going on in Afghanistan. Uh, another one of my guests, Toby Harden, in his book, um, uh, can speak on uh, the CIA presence in Afghanistan prior to 9-11. However, 9-11 hits. Uh, you and I, you were probably in, in middle school. I was in like fifth mm-hmm. grade or something like that. And boom, now we're here, GWAT, Global War on Terror. And our mission set had to very drastically uh, change to, we had to adapt, right, in order to meet this new force because we're no longer gearing up towards uh, conventional battle against uniformed, uh, uh, you know, uniformed enemy soldiers and their tanks and their helicopters. Uh, Now it is almost uh, more in line with maybe what was seen in, in Vietnam, uh, with with the Viet Cong blending into the local civilian population, is there now needing to be a turn towards conventional warfare? Given what we're seeing going on in in Ukraine, or do we need to maintain this sort of adaptability and and dynamic presence that you know? I, okay, I can go to uh, Afghanistan or Syria or 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 Iraq, or I can go handle some of these terror organizations. Uh, okay, now I can switch gears. Um, and I understand that uh, I'm going to need to bring all the fucking javelins that I have access to because we're fighting an armored column. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, what is there an answer there? Did, did we go, did the pendulum swing too far into uh, counterterrorism and, and counterinsurgency operations? Or um, if you would just speak to your, uh, your opinion on, on that. Sure. Um, I don't consider myself a subject matter expert by any means. Like I'm, I'm very much a, you know, I was close to the problem. I never had a, a bird's eye view of it. Um, I would say that those responsible for our nation's defense must adapt to whatever the threat of the day is. So did, do I think the pendulum swung too far? No, I don't. I, I don't think that it did. Uh, I think that it was absolutely appropriate for the threat we were facing. If you look back at, you know, um, you know, 9-11-2001, Operation Anaconda follows shortly thereafter. We have um, you know, a couple of years of conflict in Afghanistan, varying degrees of intensity. Iraq kicks off in March 2003. Um, by, you know, 2005, 2006, we're seeing IEDs, EFPs, all-out civil war, and, um, you know, this just massive insurgency in Iraq. And throughout that entire time, we saw the military adapt through it. We saw, you know, we went from flak jackets and, you know, driving, um, you know, wearing BDU pattern in the desert um, to next generation, you know, personal protective equipment and mine resistance, uh, mine resistant ambush, ambush protected vehicles that reduced the number of casualties we were taking from improvised explosive devices. We changed our, the way that we train at our, you know, combined training center significantly. So these, these big, you know, combat playgrounds where we train before we go overseas, they're just massive, massive acreage where we do these massive simulated wars, these huge battles to validate our fighting forces before they go overseas. Those scenarios all change from these big conventional conflicts to the fight that we were facing at the time. So you would go into this big pretend simulation sandbox 
and you'd wear miles gear, laser tag stuff all over your you know, stuff and shoot blanks at each other and stuff like that. But you would have to do key leader engagements with the village elder. You'd have to drive through a mine and, you know, IED infested road and identify the markings and signals and things that, um, you know, might cause a threat to you and, and your people. So we adapted the training for the threat. That's exactly doctrinally um, how training is supposed to happen. Like step one is, is determine the operational environment and the enemy threat. Once you determine the operational environment and the enemy threat, you train for that operational environment and that enemy threat. I don't think it would be prudent for us to do anything other than what we did while the GWAT was hot and heavy. Similarly, the threat's changing. We're out of Afghanistan. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing things from a from an insurgency perspective um, dissipate almost to, to zero, at least where we're, you know, engaged, um, uh, you know, as, a, as the United States. But we are seeing these other threats emerging. China's a huge, huge, huge... Um, concern. Russia is clearly um, a huge concern, and they aren't the only ones. Um, and we have a responsibility to kind of maintain pace with those peer competitors, those peer um, actors, and uh, ensure that, you know, God forbid, should those conflicts ever emerge, we need to guarantee the survivability of our nation. And, and, and we've seen that pivot. Um, and in fact, you know, it's been several years now since those kind of combat training center playgrounds that I described to you, they went away with all of that counterinsurgency style training and they did pivot back, um, you know, to a conventional force on force peer fight. So uh, from the ground side, yeah, like that's, that's happened so far as I know. Um, you can't speak to the other services quite as much. Um, but each time you see our, our senior leaders, you know, talking and the civilian leadership of the department of defense talking, it, it's all, um, talking about peer competitors, it's talking about peer threats, it's talking about uh, modernization requirements and, and the, the tools and the people and the capability that's going to be required um, to ensure that we are not outpaced by these people or these, uh, these threats. And I think I, I try to um, uh, bridge the gap a little bit into the law enforcement world for my, my, mm -hmm. you know, my non-military police listeners. Sure. In that law enforcement uh, police officers kind of had to do the same thing. Right? I mean, uh, the, the North Hollywood shootout in 1997, uh, uh, Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasarenu, uh, I may have totally fucked up his last name, but I don't care. He tried to kill a bunch of cops, um, but armed with AK-47s, uh, uh, body armor head to toe against patrol officers armed with nine millimeters and uh, Berettas and 12 gauge shotguns. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the tale there was very quickly uh, they had to adapt and go and essentially raid a local firearm store to buy uh, AR 15 M 16 platform so that they could, they could meet this threat. Um, yeah. You do see police cars now um, being, uh, up armored, not to the same extent necessarily, but you armored door panels, armored windows, things like that. Um, uh, your body armor, uh, police officers are now being issued plate carriers. And so, uh, uh no, I, I thank you for lending some weight to that. You say you're not a subject matter expert. You are uh, a millennium ahead of, of my knowledge on the, su on the subject, <laughs> uh, uh, for sure. But, but that it's important. Uh, and I'm glad that you, you did say it, it's important to maintain that, that dynamic capability to meet whatever threat that, that may be right. Like, like cops and the, the war on drugs that uh, spoiler alert drugs kind of won. Um, 
but uh, you know, instead of oh, we're we're picking off loads of marijuana now, it's all it's all these little blue M30 pills and and perks and, yeah. and everything loaded with fucking fentanyl as far as the eye can see. Yeah, um, deadly stuff, de- like scary yeah, stuff, scary, 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 deadly shit, man. Um, but again, you know, the the important aspect of of what the military's capability is, um, you, to me, I, I do draw reference to history in that uh, with with China and Russia you do almost have what is turning into a Pacific theater of operations and a European theater of operations, all the while maintaining this capability of fighting these insurgencies that may pop up uh, these, these sort exactly. of pro- proxy wars that, that may pop up a, a little bit all over the place. Um, so thank you for, for lending some, some weight to that. Um, sure. Where was it though? And if I, if I, uh, if, if I may, before we move on, yeah. one of the things you mentioned was like that, that organizational flexibility. I think like that is the critical, like that's the secret sauce. Um, and it goes back to the leadership stuff. Like the only way to adapt to threats to stuff, especially with giant organizations, whether it's a, you know, a police department or an agency, um, or the department of defense or a branch of service or a battalion or a company, whatever like size organization you lead instilling a culture as a leader that's extremely adaptable, extremely flexible, training your people not to get stressed out during change, but to thrive during change and setting the tone for those transitions, you know, by doing it as an optimist and and setting the vision for what it looks like at the end of those periods of change. Like that's the only way you can pivot, um, you know, from, from carrying pepper spray and, and, you know, 38 specials to, uh, (laughs) to, to pull an ARs out of the, the trunk of a car or to like shaking hands with goat herders, to like shooting javelins at T-72s. Like that's the only way to to kind of make that happen. Well, and it's important for senior leadership to understand that that dynamic flexibility needs to be present and be accepted. Um, Like uh, to bring it down to the the smallest level that I possibly can as a patrol officer. I'm no longer a patrol officer. However, um, when I was a patrol officer, I filed paperwork for a suppressor because the times that I did deploy a rifle, uh, I didn't have any hearing protection in, and that may seem like a very small thing, uh, but I would like to retain my hearing as long as humanly possible. Um, and uh, 14 months later, just today, I picked up my suppressor, and in talking to uh, one of our SWAT sergeants about it, it's like, he said, hey, if I could get him for the entire agency, I absolutely would, because you're not deploying with helmets that have ear protection. Mm-hmm. You, you've maybe got an earpiece. That's not going to really do you any good whatsoever. Um, yeah. but it's it's little things like that. Cops, you go 10 years ago and I patrol officer uh, roll up with a freaking suppressor on the end of my gun. I'd probably have a bunch of people be like, what the hell are you doing? What is the matter with? Yeah. You? Um, but uh, you know, well, again, it's more it's, than just the hearing. It's like, yeah, it's the signature piece, but the hearing protection is part of it. But the other part is like, after that gunfight, after you dump two or three mags, like you have to control that scene and you can't do it if you're deaf. Right. You know, like you can't treat the person you just shot. You can't make sure there's no other threats. You can't like calm down, you know, people around you or, or start like organizing the chaos if you can't hear and provide instructions and, and receive instructions. So it's kind of, concerning that the suppressor on a long gun isn't normal because if the long gun's coming out there's it there will be gunfire or at least like it's anticipated right um and after the gunfire there's chaos and if there's chaos you need to be able to work in that chaos and you can't do that if you can't hear so it's like a very logical train of thought in my mind and it, it seems a shame that um you know that wouldn't kind of be the norm i i did uh, on one scene have to uh i started carrying my electronic hearing protection in my rifle bag and there was a time mm. where uh, I sat there and I had my Kevlar helmet in one hand and my hearing protection in the other. And I was doing one of these like, uh, 
And I'm like, fuck it. I'll take <laughs> my, I'll, I'll take, well, I was like, I guess I'll take my hearing protection and just like <laughs> threw my ballistic glasses on. Cause the glasses are going to do a lot for the rest of my face. Uh, and I just carried mm-hmm. on, you know, it, uh, uh, I think we rely far too much on, uh, on luck, hope and prayer, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, I'm sure eventually we will get there and, uh, you and I could, could launch into an entire discussion on, on the whole quote unquote militarization of police, but I can show you anecdotal evidence of officers lives that have been saved by rifle plate carriers, been saved by, uh, the, you know, newer Kevlar helmets, um, that the yeah. helmet that I was issued when I became a police officer was manufactured when I was 10 years old. Um, yeah. And it's probably sat in the back of a hot police car, you know, through various yeah. changing temperature conditions and, and the aramid fibers. Uh, I, I'm not a, a scientist, uh, but I was like, I'm going to go buy yeah. my own helmet. Luckily they then issued me a brand new helmet, but, uh, and I, I saved $700. Although now you sit there and, you know, tell I tell junior cops hey if you're thinking about getting your own helmet like screw it go for it man get it from a reputable manufacturer and you know throw some arc rails on there that you can get hearing protection with and yeah. and you know go crazy well don't go crazy that then you make the news but uh you know yeah. <laughs> you you can be that much more successful and to your point it's hard to answer investigative questions after you've been involved in an officer involved shooting when you can't hear the the freaking questions that are being asked of you yeah uh as a as a association slash union representative i I would not want that for anybody (laughs) so yeah um but uh where in 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 your career you said you started to kind of make videos just for fun for friends Mm -hmm. um uh but where did that really develop from now we're, we're getting into like the content creator side of, of how, yeah. how Justin became controlled pairs. Yeah. So, well, the, the, the silly freaking like moniker happened. Cause like it was my gamer tag when I was a child and it just never changed. <laughs> um, but, uh, as far as like when I, I, so I started recording gameplay, I want to say it was like 20, 11 or so 2012 maybe like is when i actually started like recording and then posting it i'd recorded stuff before that and just like you know had clips and stuff to share with my friends uh experimented with like whatever the technology of the day was had like a cracked version of sony vegas and like uh or fraps or something to capture it um but uh arma 4 which is like a large-scale military simulation shooter came out in its alpha version, I think it was like 2012, 2013. And that was the first video that I ever actually posted to YouTube. And it was just like 45 minutes, completely unedited, awful audio, just like trash content. Um, but I, but I enjoyed capturing it and I enjoyed posting it because I liked to go back and relive the experience that I, the experiences I had in that game and then share those, you know, with my friends who also enjoyed that game. Um, and it, it was kind of just a, it was just a, a silly kind of like habit or hobby, um, that I never expected to be much more, you know, than it was. Um, but you know, the nature of social media and, and kind of YouTube at the time was like, it was, YouTube was still super young. I, I forget when YouTube actually came, it was like 2007 or so maybe. Um, so it was, you know, YouTube was not a decade old. Um, and so I, you know, I started seeing views and I started getting comments and I'd get the occasional subscriber and we're just, we're talking like 10, 20, you know, subscribers, like virtually nothing. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. This is fun. I'm, I'm you know, making friends um, that also enjoy the same sort of experience online as I do that I can then uh, interact with in the game. Um, 
and so I, and I started, you know, becoming interested in the audience development stuff and produced like a few very like low, I would say low effort, extremely high effort, but low quality, um, like short, you know, clips and series and mostly kind of gameplay stuff. Uh, and, and it was all just kind of like sharing this experience that I thought was super cool. Um, the game is, was extremely immersive. I love that it. it was, you know, very much, um, a close simulation of, uh, of real life, you know, it was a giant open sandbox, realistic, you know, uh, ballistic modeling for the small arms ammunition or the small arms munitions. Um, it was, uh, you know, long movements, deliberate planning, terrain analysis, you know, well replicated enemy threat systems, things that like I could appreciate, uh, as a, as a young military professional that I was just interested in. Uh, and over time, you know, I, I kind of would, post two, three, four videos over the course of a few months and then just kind of like let it sit for a while and then post two, three, four videos over, you know, the course of a couple months and let it sit for a while. The game popped up that was super interesting to me and I like kind of fell in love with the game. I was super excited about it. Then I'd post a few videos um, and, and almost never did it game tra- gain traction. But there's a few kind of points over the course of the last like six or eight years or however long I've been doing this that I can look back to and it's like, yeah, that was, that was a key moment or a catalyst that kind of took me to the next level of content creation. You know, it's kind of a series of those catalysts over time where like, for whatever reason, like one video struck gold or like I got one interaction, like with a, with a major outlet that, you know, boosted my numbers significantly in a short period of time. And kind of each one of those catalysts kind of like launched me to like whatever the next tier was. And then at at one point um, it was like, Oh, my, my content is monetized on YouTube now and I'm making 10 bucks a month or whatever it was, you know? Uh, and as soon as I saw like, okay, this is, this is a hobby. Yes. I love doing it. And I wouldn't do it if, if I didn't love it. Uh, but it's a hobby that actually has the opportunity to generate revenue for my family. And, and today nothing's changed in that regard. Like I still love doing it. And if I didn't love doing it, I wouldn't. Um, I love, you know, I like playing the games, but I really love the, the content creation side of it and, and coming on, you know, places like this and talking to people like you and, and doing my own little podcast thing. And, and, uh, and, and making videos and, and interacting with these people who enjoy the same things that I do. And, and now doing all of those things, you know, it, it produces revenue. Um, it, it gives me opportunity to access like equipment uh, and, and uh, you know, sponsorships and brand deals that allow me to keep doing the things that I enjoy doing and keep sharing it. You know, so if I can get discounted ammunition and go shoot more and film myself shooting and share that experience with other people who then decide that they might go purchase their first firearm, like that's a huge win. If I can, you know, develop a relationship with a company that, you know, carries, uh, you know, uh, everyday carry products and Neomag and, and create a partnership with them and then invite all my gamer friends who I met in these games that I love to come out to a range and shoot a couple thousand rounds of ammo over the course of a weekend, many of them touching a firearm for the very first time. Oh, and by the way, provide them discounted ammunition and everyday carry products, you know, from this company. That's like, there's a huge win. It's like all these things that I just love doing synergize remarkably well for some, for some reason. I, and it, I don't know if, uh, if I just forced it to happen or if I got super, super lucky, uh, or what, but, uh, but I, I consider myself extremely fortunate that all these things that I just really, really enjoy doing work, work together so exceptionally well. Well, and I think you've got an interesting, um, capability in that a lot of gamers may live in a state with, with, you know, whatever firearms restrictions are in place and it may be, Mm -hmm. it may be a daunting task for them to even go and attempt to purchase a firearm. Um, 
or they may have grown up in a family that you know tolerated their, sure. their video games, but were like, absolutely, you will not own a gun. And now here they are out yeah. on their own. And the world's a scary fucking place. I don't know if anybody's noticed yeah. that yet, but it is it is the Wild West in some of these locations. Um, and I can tell you as a police officer that our response times are never going to be fast enough for somebody who's got a gun to their face um, or, yeah. or is is witnessing, you know, a, a, some a crazy act of violence, um, you know, towards towards themselves or a loved one or, or is just a third party. Um, but, you know, I can remember playing golden eye on the nintendo 64 i can remember yeah. playing og ghost recon that was i think small unit tactics in that you controlled like a little eight-man squad limited by the technology of its time but i can also yeah. very very clearly remember uh coming home one day after like spending the night at a, a school friend's house and being like mom dad can i get an xbox i gotta play this halo game it's so cool um and and i would yeah yeah, well, I I can that is a that is a core memory of my childhood. Halo yeah. combat evolved, right? And the when the Master Chief, you know, un, unsealed the hushed casket. I could, I'm a total nerd. Um, uh, but I would say that that led heavily into my interest in in firearms, and then my interest in firearms lended heavily into my interest in training and becoming more capable than just being one of these assholes that goes to a range guns akimbo and, and trying to, yeah you know, trying to be a cool guy like, okay, I actually want to know how to effectively implement this. And yeah. now, now it is truly a part of my livelihood that, that I mm -hmm. see to it that I either get trained or take training or, or, you know, even if it's just dry fire practice at home, um, uh, I'm envious of your discounted ammo prices. I asked around about five, four, five ammo today because I've got an AK-74 that I love to shoot, and it's nice. it's a dollar nineteen around, and I'm like, so that it's gonna... not going to get me cheaper anytime soon. No, nope, not anytime soon. <laughs> I chose the wrong platform. Uh, I do have plenty of uh, of five, five, six, and three hundred eight guns to shoot, so I'll just uh, I'll, I'll keep on keeping on, and I'll let my Russian gun just sit quietly in the safe and not not yeah. draw attention to itself. Um, but um, and you, your content was able to monetize and it does, um, it reminds me of this, I don't know, I guess it was a meme back in the day that, hey, you know, you can you can buy from Amazon, you can buy from a big box store, but if you buy from a small business, or or in this case, you support a content creator, um, you're, you're purchasing a karate gi, right, for them to go and, and for somebody's kids to take lessons, you're purchasing uh, that that yeah. creator's daughter's ballet shoes, uh, you're, 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 helping to support this this creator and, and then they can buy the nicer camera as somebody who's not quite i'm not on youtube yet i would like to get there um but i'm looking at some of these cameras that that would make you know uh, top level content and there, and there's mm -hmm. some sticker shock there bro like oh yeah that's wow yeah okay like, i still have a car payment and all this other stuff to do and, yeah and, and by even just you put your toe in the water, right? You, you started down this path and you started to see a little bit of return on investment. And now hopefully you're seeing a lot more return on investment. Um, and you can, you can do these awesome things such as bringing folks out. Tell us about this range day that you just recently, uh, this re that you just recently hosted. Um, cause you were able to, to have basically yeah. have these folks come out and as you said, pick up a gun for the first time and actually, um, you know, get a little bit of training, get time behind the gun. Yeah. Um, so I, so I have two YouTube channels. I have Controlled Pairs Gaming, and then I, I've now started um, the second channel, which is just Controlled Pairs. 
And uh, the second channel, the kind of idea is, is more, you know, content of me in the real world, less, you know, not the gaming stuff as much. Focus more on um, on firearm stuff, for sure, more training stuff, uh, for sure, more fitness stuff. Um, and uh, kind of just like a, a look at the other, the other things that I'm extremely passionate about outside of gaming. And um, so as part of that effort, I, um, you know, about, I don't know, 10 months ago or even more than that, probably a year ago now, uh, all, all of my buddies who help moderate my Discord server, and, and like we have a few thousand people on, on the Discord server that just hang out and play games and talk, you know, uh, about, you know, games and training, all this sort of, other sort of stuff. Um, my, the moderators who helped me run that place, you know, and, and help me, um, you know, make sure that the, the, the content in there is, is appropriate and, you know, enforce all the rules and set up community game nights. And like, like they do, they essentially volunteer their time um, to help support my work. And, and we wanted to get together in the, r- the real world and go hang out together. Um, so we came up with this idea to, to kind of get everybody to the East Coast, found a private range that was able to host us, have a, you know, a friend um, with, uh, you know, the appropriate licenses to get access to guns that are extremely, you know, fun to shoot. And, um, and we brought them out and, uh, we, we went over to the range. I think there's like 10 or 12 of us. We brought, there's a couple other content creators that came out as well. Uh, you know, my buddy Ryan or Connick, uh, or Karma Cut on the internet or a uh, Connor also known as Blue Drake on the internet, both gaming creators that focus on tactical stuff, you know, a couple, several hundred thousand subscribers apiece. Um, so super successful guys who would do, who do it full time. Um, and brought them out to the East coast and we did just a, a couple days of just range time and, it was kind of varying degrees of experience, you know, some guys that are out of the military, some active, some reserve, some just, you know, young professional types, um, some just firearms enthusiasts, and then some folks who'd never touched firearms at all before. Uh, we started at the just absolute basics and kind of familiarized on rifle and pistol, made sure everyone understood just the basic safety stuff and, um, and just the absolute, you know, basics, just firing from a bench, firing from the prone, um, you know, working from a target at seven yards. And then uh, kind of advanced over the course of two days, figured, you know, the, the couple of folks who were, who were more proficient got into some moving and shooting stuff, um, you know, kind of ran some basic drills against the shot timer and just developed some confidence and some proficiency. Uh, we had nods and lasers out there, too. So we shot at night um, and, and were able to do some like stuff under dual tube white phosphorus, just beautiful, you know, glass and, and beautiful nods. And, uh, and it, you know. I was able to introduce folks to low light shooting with white light and passive aiming through red dots and EOTEX and, um, you know, shooting with an IR laser for the first time, shooting with suppressors for the first time for a lot of these folks. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was just a, an absolute blast. Ton of variety of firearms too. Uh, I mean, we had classic stuff like, you know, M1 Grand, K98, like all these World War II era re- uh, weapons, a lot of modern handguns, modern rifles, a bunch of AKs, ARs, a freaking, you know, a Tavor, a 416, like you name it. And, um, and it was out there just, just by virtue of, you know, a couple of the, the guys who are collectors and, you know, are um, just, just buddies kind of bringing stuff out for people to familiarize on. So really, really awesome experience. The guns were great. The training was awesome. Just watching them build confidence and have a blast was amazing. But honestly, for me, like the biggest win was just like, these are my, my friends. Like these are the, the people I've hung out with digitally for like over a year, year and a half. And it was the first time we all met, you know, in person together. And there was zero awkwardness, zero weird, weirdness. It was just like, hello, I know you, like you are my friend. And like quickly just like, you know, big hugs and drinking beers and at the range, drinking beers at the Airbnb the night before the range. Um, <laughs> just to make that exceptionally clear. Uh, but just, just hanging out and, and having a blast. Um, and uh, so a lot of like friendships that were already super strong, even more strong now. We definitely want to 
do stuff like that more often. Um, and we filmed like a, a ton of it and I, I put out a 20 minute video on it over on the other channel, um, which is like done exceptionally well, which is kind of blown my mind because it was like the first video on the channel and it's like at a 130 K views or something ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, extremely, extremely fortunate that it, it went the way it, it went. Lucky to have the resources, the land, the, the sponsors to like cover a lot of the costs. Um, and then just, phenomenal people to, to execute with. And, and I mean, kudos to you, man, because I think anybody who has the capability to, to teach others, um, especially when it comes to something as, I don't want to say divisive, but firearms are, are an interesting, an interesting topic because there's so much mm-hmm. misinformation and disinformation available um and and here you are taking taking the time and and making the effort to bring all these folks out to one central location and as you said they're they're all friends of yours but but you're also taking you've got the abilities with with those of them that uh those are the 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 folks that don't have a whole lot of experience or any experience um you know behind guns certainly behind like ira ir lasers and nods um, yeah. and, and you're able to bring them all out and, and host essentially a range day and Hey, what you see online, what, what you do in these tactical simulated shooters, this is the, this is IRL right here, right? This is the real deal. Yep. Uh, this is what, when you, when you, when you pull that trigger, click that mouse button, this is what that actually feels like. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that super awesome that you were able to, to get that done in the realm of, of, these tactical shooters that you play, um, I mean, uh, ready or not door kickers too. I, you're, I think your door kickers two videos are some of my favorite. Um, and, and I'll get into those ground branch. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you did a video, uh, like, a I don't, it's not out yet, but, uh, six days in Fallujah, uh, is an upcoming, yep. uh, upcoming game. Do you see value in, in these games or, uh, and you, I would hope by now in our conversation, you probably know where I sit on, on this, but just to play devil's advocate, do you see value yep. in, in these games uh, where other people, um, uh, again, not to shit on them, but John Lovell, uh, Warrior, Warrior Poet Society, uh, again, massive amount of respect for John, but John looks at video games as this like hindrance to uh, being a successful human being. Um, however, and and we're not 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 talking about the VR stuff, not yet. But do you find yeah, value? Just in, games. Yeah, just games. You know, on a computer, on a console. Do you find value in, in these games as far as a training aid? Certainly not replacing training, but a training aid. Um, yes, with lots of caveats. Um, to uh, to to John's point, like there's definitely a way to do it wrong, right? Like the stereotypical gamer who John is describing, and I know him to be describing, is you know, every bit as warranting of the criticism that he likely bestowed upon them. Right. Um, but like, that's not me <laughs> and, that, and that's not, uh, and that's not the folks I hang out with. Like the, if, if, if gaming is such an addiction that you are sacrificing your social life and uh, it is jeopardizing your academics or your progress in the world, that is a problem. If gaming is such an addiction that you earn six figures a year doing it, that is not a problem. That is a success story. So there's there's different ways of, of measuring it, right? Um, so, to, but to your question specifically on are these tactical games played on a traditional computer 
training aids are valuable in that regard. Um, I hesitate to use the word training, right? Because there's a ton of connotation associated with it. Um, there are virtual tools that are absolutely training, but training has very specific goals and objectives. Um, you know, training objectives are defined prior to training being to conducted. Uh, training has a very specific plan and it's uh, a specific duration uh, and it has specific goals that are, you know, you're trying to achieve at the end of it. So at the end of that training, you should be able to look at that list of goals that you were trying to achieve and identify whether or not you achieve them. You know, if I, if I want to go do a squad live fire or a battle drill six live fire, or if I, you know, want to train physical fitness and I want to, you know, get better at doing pushups, I might say, I'm going to train pushups three days a week and do 150 pushups, whatever it is. And I'm going to retest myself at the end of it. I have a specific objective. These games don't do that traditionally. Right. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that they do increase individual proficiency um, in two key ways, maybe three, probably two key ways. Um, one is just critical thinking and tactical decision-making. Um, and do I consider that training? I, again, I, I hesitate to use the word training because I just had this doctrinal definition of training in my head and I know, I know what training is and I don't, playing a game isn't that. It is valuable in and of itself, and I think it can be good in and of itself. I think it can make you a better tactical decision maker um, as long as you're playing it, like, with that goal in mind. So, like, when, when, when my friends and I play, uh, you know, some of these games, like, we'll, we'll take Ready or Not, for instance. Ready or Not, for the folks who aren't as uh, ridiculously nerdy as me and are unfamiliar with it, is a, it's a high-fidelity first-person shooter developed by Void Interactive. It's been out for about five months. It's still in early access. It's available on Steam. And it is a first-person shooter that is a SWAT-themed game. Uh, it's asymmetric in nature. Um, it has, um, you know, it has shoots and no shoots. It's got folks who will conceal weapons and pull them out when you're not looking. Uh, and it has, you know, bright light. has low light. It's got all sorts of crazy ambiance and and uh, and audible stuff going on throughout the entire experience. Wide uh, array of tools, not just lethal tools, but non-lethal stuff. Uh, various methods of breach, mechanical explosive. Um, and, uh, and, and just a, a ton of different tools that, to the greatest extent that I've ever seen, is the best representation of close quarters battle in a law enforcement setting that I've ever seen. Um, when we play that game, you know, we typically try to do it in, in a way that is representative of how an actual team may attempt to take some of these places. So we, we consider breach points. We consider how we stack. We consider, you know, what walls are going to stop bullets what, and what ones aren't. How we're going to try to capture rather than kill people inside. Um, how to provide security while we're putting people under custody. Uh, and all these like problems that that you would actually have to work through in a traditional scenario. So just doing that in a digital environment does, no doubt in my mind, affect the way that your brain processes and analyzes those geometry problems because that's what CQB is. It's a series of geometry problems uh, with rapid decision making and consequences. It's not the same as doing ready ups or practicing, you know, entering and clearing rooms with with a team. Certainly, that there's no physical demand um, of it in the same way. But but there's definitely something going on in your brain. It'll change the way that you analyze those situations uh, and affect your decision making. Um, and, you know, if you've hit a corner fed room on a computer 150 times, that's still more than zero times, you know, and, it, and your brain has at least gone through that process functionally. Um, and I know we're going to talk about the airsoft thing later, but like we, we witnessed that translate. We did um, to a certain degree. So that, that's the one. It, it, it's the tactical decision-making piece in real time. I think it does challenge you to do that. And the game Door Kickers, which you alluded to, which which a lot of people uh, like my Door Kickers videos quite a bit, some of the most successful content that I've created. Um, it's a top-down CQB close-quarters battle planning game. 
where you have a, a bunch of, uh, you know, assaulters and, and you trace out each individual path, which way their weapon is oriented when they employ handheld devices, uh, at what order, order they enter and clear a room. And you do it all from a bird's eye perspective without roofs on structures. So you can actually navigate these, um, essentially shoot houses. Right. But similarly, you know, that allows you to, to, to make a bunch of tactical decisions, do a bunch of analysis of that map and consider like, how would I do this? Like if I was actually asked to go do this and I had this picture from a satellite, you know, or an, an ISR asset of some sort, how would I do this? Um, and doing that a thousand times, you know, it, it is not that much different than me as a leader sitting down with the guys and just, you know, um, looking at a piece of imagery and saying, all right, boys, how are we going to do this? Like, what's the plan? And whiteboarding it out. Because it's the same process. Um, I might think of it differently based off the game mechanics available in these these platforms. But but your brain's still running through a lot of the same churn. So that, that's kind of like the tactical decision-making piece. Um, the other way I think is valuable is communication, uh, particularly verbal communication. Not, not as much nonverbal, which is so, so, so important um, in, in fighting. Because um, no game does that well. But... Uh, in, in, in task management, in providing clear instructions to the people around you, in using, you know, um, brevity codes and, and nomenclature in extremely clear ways and being able to provide extremely clear instructions, um, you know, verbally, it, it absolutely challenges you to do that. So, like, if I'm in a leadership position in one of these games, and, and I, for example, play a game like Squad, which is a massive first-person shooter battle where a team of 50 faces off another human team of 50 and there's actual leadership roles embedded on either side and as if I'm in a leadership position in that game I might be responsible for uh, a 12-man squad and I might actually you know be providing instructions to two fire team leaders who are actually like moving these guys around and placing them and, and maneuvering with them and the tasks that I'm explaining those you know nerds on the internet to go do is is not wholly unlike you know the things I ask you know, uh, of folks to do in the real world. I, um, that answers your question. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you spoke very well about, uh, about all of that. I mean, and my, my experience with online gaming, I was so against online gaming for a long time because I always equated online gaming to, uh, uh, logging into like GTA online and being called a bitch by a 12 year old. And that just was not on my to-do list for that day. Um, but it was a lot of, uh, you know, modern warfare, which I, modern warfare, uh, <laughs> uh is its own beast uh in and of itself it is. um what i like about a game um such as uh ready or not knowing only what i know from from your videos right is the the diverse scenarios that that you oh, yeah. that you're put into in a law enforcement specific role um, again, without necessarily departmental policies and procedures put in place. Um, but I imagine there are a set amount of there, there's a set guideline or series of rules that you have to follow. You said there's shoot versus no shoot, right? Whereas you go into like modern warfare and it's just, it is a battle royale, right? There's no, no shoot targets. There's, there's no civilian targets that can accidentally get in the way you are not held accountable for each round that you put down range, right? You can't just wantonly start shooting through fucking doors and drywall, um, uh, you know, like it's going out of style. There are real uh, in game, but real consequences mm -hmm. to that, to those actions. Nonetheless, uh, a game such as, uh, um, door kickers. So like in, in our world, um, one thing that I've done in the past is, is as a, a, a I have not a military veteran. I'm not on a SWAT team, but as a detective, I occasionally have to send a SWAT team to go and, and essentially execute something on, 
at my at my request, right? I hey, here's this bad guy. This is the shit that they did wrong. This is why I need them arrested. Uh, here you go. Me as a investigator uh, and my own sort of intelligence gatherer. If this person's holed up in an apartment, well, you go onto an apartment website and you get layout plans so I can print that yep. out and give it to the SWAT team. But like, here you go, guys. What yep. they do with it from there, you know, I, I don't know if they just pass it around and everybody looks at it, but you get a game such as uh, Door Kickers. And I'm sure with the right software, and I believe you, there is a map creation option. Or, there is. Yeah. Uh, you, you could recreate the layout of a real building, a real structure. And it, even, We've done it. And and you guys have done it. And even to the layperson, you mentioned, you know, center, corner fed rooms. You you play this game uh, uh, after only playing one, you know, one iteration. You now know what a corner fed and a center center fed room do. And you understand yep. the, the nuances between the two. And you cannot take uh, the rooms the same uh, as a inside joke and a gift to anybody who's watched your videos, you may or may not uh, encounter a suicide bomber in a bathroom, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, still I'm probably one of that one, Don. Still probably one <laughs> of my favorite reactions from any of your videos. Um, and, and I think the video that you released immediately thereafter, you were like, oh, God, there's a bathroom. I hate bathrooms. <laughs> um, Since then, that's been six months. And every time we encounter a bathroom in that game, I still get comments. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? It's all all in good fun, right? But it but again, oh, yeah. you're you're thinking about it, and it also presents you with the ability to um, conduct certain tactical decision making. Uh, you may have access to a uh, uh, an endoscope or a, a boar snake or a, a whatever a snake camera snake, whatever you want to call it, um, or or flashbangs or how are how are you going to to are you going to breach a door in a conventional yeah. matter? Um, through you know you've got a bolt cutter for a lock or you've got a sledgehammer or are you going to put a charge on a wall and blow the wall. Um, not necessarily decisions I, as a police officer, would ever get to make. Generally, uh, see door, smash door uh, is about the extent of what we do. <laughs> I've gone through a window twice, um, yep. uh, and I've climbed up to the second story of a balcony once. But um, I think that uh, I, I I respect your um, your your comments on on maybe not using the word training, uh, but it almost sort of provides you with this like glossary of terms in a sense it and, does and and you kind of start to maybe get that that thirty thousand foot view um that provides you with a very very general understanding right you look out the window of an airplane be like oh there's farm fields down there i don't know what kind yep. of farm fields they are but i can see that there's fields down there okay sure. well now i've played these games um you know i understand that not everybody can be shot right that is not that is not an option uh i understand the differences in um uh, you know Okay, I can clear a, a, a corner fed room, maybe with a lot less heartache that I can clear a center fed room. And, and what are the challenges to both? Um, am I yeah. going to necessarily just waltz right past this window without maybe taking a peek first? Uh, I don't know. Um, even down to are there curtains in that window uh, within that that particular game? Um, so I, I definitely do believe that there is value there. Um, yep. Provided you seek it out, it, you know, it's. I guess it's like any training uh, and, and it, there I go using that word, but it, like anything in life, you can get into it. You can get out of it what you put into it. Do you want to learn something 100%. from it? You'll learn something from it. Do you just want to sit there and, you know, wander off into la la land for two hours? Well, shit. All right, go ahead and do that too. So 
the something two quick comments one concur with everything that you just said like that's i'm wholeheartedly on board with with your your analysis um what some of the things i've been the feedback that i've received or i received over the years at work was that i was an extremely effective communicator on the radio in under pressure and under duress um which is certainly a requirement of the profession and the roles that that i fill um that is not because I played games, but there is no doubt in my mind that it was enhanced, at least partially from it. And the habits that I picked up in games, I saw myself using at work. And the, the habits that I built at work, I saw myself using in games. And, and so there was no doubt synergy and similarity in specifically in the way that we communicated. The other piece is gaming has been a part of the profession of arms for as long as the profession of arms has existed. Um, you know, in as far back as, you know, Roman armies um, fighting with swords and, and stabbing people to death, you had leaders engaging in war games on tabletop um, to rehearse tactical decision making. That tradition carries over to today. And we still, in everywhere we generate maneuver leaders, we whether that's, you know, artillery, combat arms, um, you know, infantry, what have you, we still do war games. We do it on tabletop. Um, sometimes it's done digitally through like legitimate, you know, simulations. Um, but, but that tradition has no doubt carried over. And oftentimes you'll even see at, at the organizational level in units, you'll see senior leaders bring in their junior officers for, you know, a leadership professional development session in which they pre- present them with what's called a tactical decision game. And it'll be, you know, a paragraph or a page of like, Hey, here's the friendly situation. Here's the enemy situation. Here's your light and weather data. Um, this is, you know, the, the scenario that you've been given and the mission that you've been tasked to complete, you know, an abbreviated operations order, as we would call it. Um, and then, uh, they're given that information in word format and then they're handed a map and all of a sudden they go to plot and grids and drawn good guys and bad guys. And, and then they, they go into making a series of decisions on how exactly they would account for that scenario and take on that scenario. So th- that tradition is, is alive and well. Um, and you know, it's 2022, we have these technological means. It would be a shame if that tradition terminated on board games and didn't migrate into a digital space that is so much more capable of achieving so much more in the way of efficiency, um, you know, than, uh, than these older means. I have to imagine we are not, uh, too far from, uh, the holodeck in Star Trek, right? Where I can, (laughs) I can walk into a room and, and in, in many ways we already have it with the VR capabilities of our time, um, sure. that have progressed greatly from we golf, uh, to, uh, you're carrying, uh, an M4 or an AR 15 mm-hmm. and you've got your VR goggles on and you're put in a massive warehouse, um, that would, or, you know, uh, a home Depot, right? So basically well, home, dude, we're there. Home Depot. We can do sized. that right now. You can go do that right now. Um, yep. But uh, I have to imagine that the technology will be there one day. I'm sure Elon Musk will have something to do with it, um, where we can literally just step into a space and uh, I'm in I'm in kit. And you know what? I don't have to buy. I don't have to, in, it, to transition now to VR. Um, that ammunition is infinite, right? The, you have the, yeah. the, the cost of the initial equipment, the VR equipment. You have the cost to maybe maintain uh, and update the software, cer- certainly the, the, the power costs, and maybe you've got a building, so you've got rent or, or a mortgage 
to pay that. Um, sure. But you don't have all of these things on top of the cost of ammunition and the cost of like, oh shit, somebody just ND'd into that guy's leg. Yeah. That's not good. Now we got to deal with yeah. that. Um, whereas you can just sort of, you know, like a laser tag arena, but yeah. maybe a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more seriously. Um, yeah. Uh, but even then, I would say that that VR gaming has maybe some sort of root in, you know, the laser tag arenas that we played mm -hmm. in as, as kids. Um, and, and what I like about VR is that you can truly put somebody now you're not you're not really playing a video game. I would say that VR in the correct setting truly could be uh, you could establish training objectives. Yeah. Um, and, and you could. Uh, you know, I, I don't really know how you'd simulate opening a door in VR because if there's not a door there, but I digress. Um, like even even my shoot house at my agency is no longer a live fire shoot house. Your guns uh, are basically CO2 powered uh, and okay. and you there are the entire shoot house is basically the walls are all screens and things mm -hmm. are projected onto the screens and you fire and there's a person in the back of the is room. That a do you know what the the sin is? Is it like laser shot or Verta? Uh, no. So we we are. I think we're getting a Vertra, and I've you I've Vertra, shot yeah. yeah I've shot Vertra uh, uh, with uh, Guardian Training and Consulting, who's a, a former uh, coworker of mine, uh, Josh Logan. Um, uh, Vertra is a great software system, especially when you get the. Uh, I think it's not a full three sixty. Um, it's it's like three hundred degrees. Basically, you you have to have a place where you can enter the the. Uh, mm -hmm. octagon if you will um, and what I really like about Vertra is the ability to what used to just be a flat screen and the scenario for the police officer played out in front of you now it is truly all around you and you have to be capable of yeah uh, it is now much more uh, asymmetric or, or it allows for that asymmetric training because in the real world the real world is not a square flat range right um, yep there are people up high there are people down low some assholes going to come up behind you with a claw hammer or a flat bladed screwdriver or another gun what have you and virtual also allows you to there's specific flashlight attachment that you can use and they can make the screens yep. dark and, and you can use a flashlight uh, no I don't know what our software is called uh, I, actually I need to find that out um, and then I'll, I'll text it to you and let you know but it's a great great system all the way around and you can you can move the the doors of the shoot house and move the walls around mm -hmm. and it's all modular right that's awesome um, that's great uh, and, and, and this is a, a very long winded version of, of me saying that I think that we're getting there, right. Uh, especially in the VR realm. Um, but another realm that, that you just recently got done kind of playing in was airsoft, um, and this sort of massive force on force airsoft campaign, um, uh, out at, at one of these, uh, these, these schools that I, I know they do like disaster simulation and a few other things mm -hmm. for, for first responder agencies. But, um, Speak on on airsoft, man. I mean, airsoft. When I was young, I mean, I spent way too much money on an airsoft, uh, like M4, like SOP mod. Uh, it was OG. Yeah. It was the coolest shit because it was uh, early GWAT days, and and it was what yeah. everybody wanted to have. Um, yeah. And th and then you always got made fun of uh, for being an airsofter. <laughs> uh, however, you now see uh, uh, folks like you and and the organization and the group that you went out with, uh, Haley Strategic, Travis Haley will talk about uh, airsofting yep. on occasion, uh, especially with with his kids. Um, but uh, but but again, man, tell us about this this whole like massive airsoft event that took that took place. Yeah, so I had zero real airsoft experience, um, and and I also had like I was 
susceptible to all of the stereotypes that you just alluded to. Like all I knew of airsoft was like the clickbaity stuff you see on YouTube of, you know, teenagers fighting over who shot who first and just like just being childish. Um, and, it, and it's interesting that like that representation of airsoft is so similar to like your average rep- representation of tactical gaming or just gaming in general. Like, um, you know, my assessment on, on airsoft was not different than John Lovell's assessment on gaming. You know, like that's kind of how I saw it. Um, but you see, you know, I, I saw guys like, you know, Travis Haley and, and, and I, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be, um, to have buddies over at, at Haley strategic and, and have them, they, they've hooked me up in the past with some gear and stuff like that. And they were actually out at this event as well. Um, and, but you see guys like Travis and you see guys like, uh, like mill spec mojo, who's, you know, a law enforcement officer in his own right. And, uh, you know, phenomenal shooter, um, and, and has his own social media presence. And, uh, and just so these like extremely reputable shooters and, and practitioners of the profession that say, Hey, like airsoft's worth a shot. Um, and so I, I, I said, okay, like I'll, I'll go do this. Um, and after my range weekend where I brought my buddy, Ryan, uh, karma cut out to, to shoot, you know, firearms, um, you know, he invited me out to come do airsoft and come to this event, which is like something that he's done in the past. And, and I went in ex- just really just wanting to have fun and just going in with a, with an open mind and, um, trying to put aside the the stereotype that I had in my mind of what it was going to be like. And instead just like take it for, for the experience that I got. Um, and I guess like first things first, it was just fun as hell, man. Like I just had an absolute freaking blast, like good people make it a hell of a lot better for sure. Um, but we just had so much fun. Like it, it was just, it, it is just pure fun. Just grown men having a good time and women. And, um, and so the event we went to, it was, uh, it was called the, the campaign or whatever it was called, um, Iron Horse 4. It was hosted by a company that runs these Milson events called American Milson. It was located, uh, at the Guardian Center in Perry, Georgia. The Guardian Center is like a world tra- a world-class training facility. It hosts special operations forces, fire department, disaster relief folks, um, you know, law enforcement, you know, like you name it of who's who is trained, you know, at, uh, at Guardian Center. And it's got you know, subterranean stuff. It's got an entire metro system underground with train cars on rails that you can work through. It's got tons of structures, a lot of CQB encounters, um, some open terrain, some vegetation and wood line. Um, like it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely absurd. Like it's just a phenomenal facility. Um, the campaign occurred kind of over two days. It was massive 400 on 400, you know, you know, two teams. Um, and the group that I ran with was, you know, 12 or 15 dudes, um, in a mix of, you know, active military, um, some guys from soft, some guys from, you know, different law enforcement organizations, um, guys with, you know, uh, active SWAT dudes. Um, and then like, you know, civilians who were just interested in airsoft and, and wanted to, to, to have a good time. And we didn't take it crazy serious. Like we didn't, you know, assign you're a sergeant and everyone's going to call you sergeant and stand at parade rest. And like, we, we, we did not go that far. And I think that would be like the tipping point for me. We went in, like, hey, let's have a good time and let's see how these people from various backgrounds work together with, you know, our, our basic knowledge uh, of uh, a fire maneuver and in, in these basic knowledge of tactics. And, uh, and, and it worked exceptionally well. We had a blast. Um, you can immediately see, uh, you know, the, the vets and the active guys and the, and the SWAT guys, like, without even skipping a beat, like, immediately, like, you know, falling in on, on well-known uh, TTPs and, and means of fire maneuver that you would expect. A lot of bounding, a lot of you know, stacking in, in doctrinal ways, entering, clearing stuff in doctrinal, doctrinal ways, communicating effect, uh, effectively. Um, you know, we had line of sight, um, you know, VHF and UHF radios. Um, 
And, uh, and yeah, so it, it was just, uh, it was a blast and it was a day and night, plenty of dudes out there brought nods. And so like, guys were doing low light guys were, you know, using lasers. Um, and, uh, you know, I was super lucky, um, airsoft extreme, which is a, a retail shop located in California, as well as a PTS syndicate, which is a pretty big name in the airsoft business, hooked me up with the gear to go do it. Um, and, uh, like another thing, like just, you know, by, by some fortunate magic of wizardry, I, I end up encountering these people at the right time um, who are willing to, to provide me the means to go and, and do this like just wild stuff that, I, that turns out to be a blast uh, and is mutually beneficial for, for, for you know, both me and, and for them. So super grateful to them and for, you know, Ryan or Karma Cut having me out to that event. But um, I, again, it was, it was gamified. You know, I, I, I don't think I would call what we did um, deliberate training. But again, there was tons of value, like muzzle awareness, just basic weapon manipulation, activating, you know, deactivating the, the safety selector switch, um, doing magazine changes and providing cover, um, you know, conducting uh, CASAVAC operations, establishing, you know, casualty collection points, communicating effectively on the radio, um, you know, just basic mission command type functions and coordinating who's assaulting where, when, why, how, um, basic CQB stuff and, and moving in and out of these complex environments. Like all of that stuff happened organically. And there's no doubt in my mind that the people who, you know, went out and were in our little group are, are better because of it. Um, not to even mention like the, the fitness a- aspect. Um, you know, I, I was out there um, in, uh, in, in my like personal kit the, that, uh, that Haley Strategic hooked me up with. They gave me one of their thorax plate carriers, which, you know, I, I freaking love running. And, and I had plates in front and back, had my helmet on. Um, and all the weight that you would associate with being in full kit. And I was out there just running my ass off and, and, uh, and bounding and moving, uh, you know, and it, it felt like home again. It was great. Um, and, uh, and you can feel it. Like you can go to a flat range and just like send rounds down range all day or sit in front of a computer and, and play these tactical games all day. But, but um, you know, that will never get your heart rate up like, uh, you know, running 40 yards as fast as you can in full kit from cover to cover. Yeah, until until you make that run, uh, I think the longest run I ever did uh, in in the real world in full kit with a rifle on uh, you know a once in a career God I hope so a once in a career situation was probably about a hundred yards and I was fucking gassed at the end of it man oh, yeah. like I was like I thank God that, that like I worked with guys who, who we all maintained our, our physical fitness, like amongst each other. And we all held each other accountable for that because, uh, like I, I would have not been an effective fighter at that point in time, uh, which is what I, what we needed to be right then and there in that particular instance, airsoft allows you to do that. Right. It, just like you said, oh, yeah. the, the shit that you see in a game, right? Like you don't get tired uh, you know, uh, hitting the arrow keys really well, your hand might cramp up. Maybe, uh, you don't really get, get a whole lot of, of, you know, tired on your index finger type of thing, clicking a mouse button. Um, but you're able to, to take what, what maybe piqued your interest in games. And now with a program like airsoft, uh, I said, well, program with a product like airsoft, um, Mm -hmm. you can, you can set a kit up and, go out and run it and you don't have to worry about am i at an appropriate range i I will say this caveat uh people playing with airsoft guns have had the police called on them and the police have shown oh i believe it have and the police have shown up with real guns uh and sometimes those encounters have not ended in a very uh good way for anybody involved so um 
for instance, I once responded to a burglary call thinking I was going up against dudes who straight up like, yeah, we saw a bunch of guys jump the wall from the main road and they had like, dude, it was weird. They had like rifles with lights on them and the whole nine yards. And I was like a brand new patrol officer going, what in the hell in the CIA hit team am I about to walk into right now? Yeah. <laughs> and then a, ki- a kid comes around the corner with thankfully a clear plastic MP5 with like a, okay, good. like a Walmart flashlight duct tape to it. And I'm like, bro, we like, come here, dude, it's dark. You and I need to have a conversation about good decision making. Bring, bring your friends out of your backyard before one of you gets, <laughs> gets smoke checked by your own fucking neighbor. Um, yeah, but airsoft BBs, uh, probably not suffering the same inflation as ammunition right now. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, airsoft has its limitations, right? Uh, range. Yep. I imagine wind plays a big factor into, yep. into BBs, yep. but, but to conduct CQB operations in particular, I have to imagine it's still a pretty valuable, um, uh, you know, uh, I will, I will say training aid, but it, it, you, you can find, again, you can find value in it and, and running your kit and seeing what works before you actually hit the ground in the real world. Uh, you know, are, as you make that 40 yard dash, did you just have a tactical garage sale? and all your shit fell off. Um, Did you put that magazine in the correct spot? Are you indexing uh, appropriately? Are you able to uh, sling your rifle and transition to a a handgun? uh, You know, things of that nature. And it forces you to think under a, uh, a measured amount of, of pressure, right? That, That training or gaming playing around on an airsoft field can only recreate so much stress uh, that you'll never really get to, to real world stress as much as you try to yeah. simulate it. You just won't get there. But if you get really, really good at, at the, at handling, you know, communications, uh, room clearing, if you, if you can create a solid basic foundation and you can do it under the stress of, you know, the self-imposed stress or the, the situational stress of, of an airsoft match, um, then when the real world shit hits the fan, uh, provided that you can, keep your wits about you. I imagine that you are going to be that much better, uh, for it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what your thoughts are. No, I, I, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And it, again, it's, it's how you approach it. And, and I went there thinking like, I want to have a blast and I hope I get something out of it. And, and I did have a blast and I, I certainly uh, got something out of it. I definitely plan to attend more events. I don't think that I don't know that I would go to like your average pickup pickup game, like a, like a local field or something like that. Nothing against doing that by any means. Um, but the experience I got at that event is an experience that I want to replicate and continue to, to do. So I think I would, I would look for opportunities to go back to and do stuff like that on a large scale with the right people and the right equipment. Um, and, and it was extremely valuable. And, and I've, I published a, a couple of videos on it. I've got a few more coming out. So if folks are curious about checking it out, um, you know, I, I did some like kind of tactical breakdown stuff explaining like how we were moving, why we were moving. You get to kind of see uh, the way we were communicating and, and buzzing around to, you know, if you, so if you're interested in exploring that arena, I, I, w- I wouldn't hesitate to check it out. I, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this kind of like the, the body of, uh, you know, stuff we're talking about um, to, to have an open mind with respect to airsoft, I was surprised about it. And, and something we didn't mention is we were employing like handhelds as well. So we had pyro, we had like simulated frag grenades, simulated bangers, we had smoke. Um, and, uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, a really, really interesting experience. I mean, never in my career have I ever found myself, um, in near complete darkness relying on white light cause it was daylight and we didn't have nods mounted, right. Lesson learned, um, clearing a freaking train car with, uh, with white light and tossing like you know, bangers from train car to train car and then, you know, rushing it and essentially like this tubular assault. Um, 
and so just like really unique stuff that you, you just wouldn't expect to ever have to deal with. Um, but yeah, we got, we got a ton out of it, met a lot of just phenomenal people. And, uh, yeah, I'm extremely grateful. I had the, the opportunity to go do it. Yeah. And, and again, to, uh, to, to put the facility in perspective for those of you, uh, given, given what Justin described it as, if you think of Verdansk, if you, if you go to, to allude back to the, the gaming world, uh, it's a little bit like that in that you have the Metro, you've got high, well, high rises to a certain extent, you've got destroyed buildings. Um, yeah. and, and this facility is awesome. I mean, I've seen it. They, they've, uh, um, conducted like swift water rescue confined space mm-hmm. rescue they'll break out robots these like fire fire departments will come through uh search and rescue crews will come through they can flood entire sections of this facility um you know dive teams can go out there and, and practice their 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 stick as well so it's a it's a pretty awesome uh facility that you really there are a few of them around the country. There's there's a similar facility in College Station, Texas, for uh, the Texas Engineering Extension Service, um, but uh, it's not created in as many places. Every state should have one of these these facilities, yeah. I mean, truly, uh, because it, it can be used in such a diverse um, uh, manner. So, uh, truly, I, I was uh, I saw that and I was like, you know what? Uh, maybe there's something to airsoft. Um, uh, my buddy, yeah. Andrew, who I've had on the show before, uh, from austere tack med, uh, he's, uh, uh, also, a, a, in law enforcement and he hit me up. He's like, dude, do you think we should get into this? And I'm like, well, I got to repair a cracked windshield and go on an anniversary trip, but maybe when I get back, <laughs> maybe yeah. when I get back, we can sit down and, and, uh, and hash out some, uh, some good times in the desert. And, uh, and Justin, I think that, uh, I'll have to put the, my Southwest rapid rewards card to use and, uh, and bring you out to Arizona, <laughs> man. I'd love to, man. I would absolutely love it, man. There's a there's a big one in Arizona coming up in September. Oh no, if, kidding! Uh, okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll hit you up separately and, and see if we can line that one up. It'll be a good one. Yeah, heck yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be freaking awesome. I got to see when the tactical games are. I uh, uh, did uh, promise a couple people I would compete in the tactical games, which I'm I'm super. Mm. Uh, I've got butterflies in my stomach just thinking about it. But uh, uh, yet another. I, it, interestingly, I too am registered for an upcoming tactical games. Oh, well, I'll be out, I'll be out in the, the Midwest here in a couple months. Awesome. You will have to uh, have to give me some pointer pointers because uh, uh, you can't host the tactical games in Arizona in the summer. People will die. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I get that. Yeah, sure. It, it is too damn hot to, to do much of anything. So, man, I, I have taken up two hours of your precious time. It is uh, you are you are three hours ahead of me. I know it's it's late where you are. I greatly appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, again, super uh, floored to just have the, the experience to talk to you. Uh, 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 you know, in, in, uh, pseudo in real life, if you will, um, uh, as opposed to just, uh, letting you whisper sweet nothings in my ear about tactical, uh, <laughs> tactical gameplay and CQB <laughs> while I, while I doze off into dreamland, uh, and, and, and try to avoid bathrooms with, uh, suicide bombers in them. Um, but, uh, go. uh, take our last couple of minutes, man. You've got a microphone to the world. I got listeners, uh, uh, kind of here, there and everywhere. Uh, what does the world need to hear from controlled pairs gaming? Oh man, I, thanks so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. I um I don't often get to peek into like the window of law enforcement, so I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be here and uh, and eager for for opportunities like this, you know, in the future. So any chance I get to come talk to to different folks from different you know professions is a is a, is a blessing to me. So I, I do appreciate you giving me two hours of uh, of your time. And uh, yeah, for the folks out there, and just uh, do what you love. I'm lucky that what I uh, love to do has 
ended up being, you know, fruitful for me and my family. And, uh, I, I guess any, any success that I've had has just been by virtue of, uh, encountering the right people at the right time and, and just passionately pursuing the stuff that I'm enjoying doing. Um, if you guys want to link up with me at all, I do have a website. It's uh, controlledpairs.gg. All of my socials and everything is there. It's kind of a one-stop shop. Um, it'll get you on to, to both the YouTube channels, all the socials. Um, I do a, I do a monthly podcast myself. I've only got like four or five episodes up, but that's been a blast so far. Um, and, uh, would love to connect with anyone who's got any questions or anything coming out of this. Certainly if anyone's thinking about like a career of service, uh, that's something I'm super passionate about. So if there's like, a you know, folks considering uh, pursuing a, a commission in the military or, or going into special operations or enlisting or anything like that, always eager to talk to those folks and, um, and just provide, uh, whatever I can in the way of, uh, of information or answer your questions and kind of help you make that super tough decision. Uh, eager to do that as well. And, and yet another highlight of, of this content creator and sort of this, this new generation of folks that are coming in, uh, you know, and, and, and growing through social media. That's, that's where I found controlled pairs, um, uh, was on YouTube and on Instagram and, uh, uh, definitely reach out to him if you have questions. Certainly if you're thinking about a career in, in, uh, police work, reach out to me. I don't give trolls the time of day. Um, I just, I just don't respond and I'll block your ass. But, uh, certainly if you are curious about, Hey, I, you know, thinking about police work, but like, I don't know what the, the way things are going right now. Um, the one thing that I've told every sergeant that I've worked for is that I'll shoot you straight every time and I'm not going to bullshit. So, uh, if you've got questions about police work, I can't dive into specifics on where I work, um, or any cases that I've had. Um, uh, but I will, uh, definitely, you know, take time to, to talk to you and Justin will do the same. If you got any questions about commissioning in the military or ranger school or, you know, uh, uh, anything of that nature. So, and I'm, and thank you for, I had almost completely forgotten to, uh, give you, uh, the time to, to selfishly promote yourself. I wanted to make sure you had the opportunity, <laughs> had the opportunity to do that. So, uh, control pairs, gaming.gg, right? And that's everybody, that's like a clearinghouse. Everybody can get everywhere. Get you uh, one of the controlled pairs stickers. I'm telling you, it's a badass, uh, a very badass and yet adorable uh, pair, like the fruit uh, in full kit, uh, who, who's just a chill fucking dude. Uh, uh, you know, he's, yeah, stick them on a water bottle, put them on your mini fridge at work. Uh, there you stick, go. stick them on your car window and, and just let the world know what's up. Justin, thank you so much for joining, man. Uh, again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, everybody else, thank you so much for supporting the channel. Many, many good things to come. My artwork's all done and paid for. Uh, uh, shirts, hats, and stickers will be on the way this summer. So thank you again so much for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the road. Mm-hmm.